when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. What's good, Internet? It's February 10th, 2023, and you are listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 541. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and I'm joined by Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Patrick Klapik. Hello. Hey, way to go. <laughs> I was and thinking Renata about Price. it the whole time. No, don't ruin it. <laughs> you motherfucker, you fucked it. You yeah, fucked it. Yeah, but he left a beat. He did it there to fuck with me. <laughs> He put in a long beat oh, to bait me. My God. I took the bait. Well, I'm so sorry. <laughs> how are you this morning? I'm doing great. Uh, how are you feeling about the fact that, like, do I have this right? Metroid Prime just, like, came out last night? Fuck. Yes. <laughs> uh, Congrats to all the Metroid heads. Yeah, Metroid, uh, a long-rumored Metroid Prime uh, remake, remaster that has been alleged by a number of Nintendo insiders, plus straight up just legitimate reporters, that uh, Nintendo has a historical tendency in the Switch era to sit on games that are finished for a very long time. And we don't have the definitive timeline on this, but there is a world in which this game was finished 18 months ago (laughs) and has just sat (laughs) on a hard drive. I think part part, part of that was because Metro Prime 4, which was a previous in development at Bandai Namco, uh, was canceled, and then development reins were handed over to Retro, who was starting from scratch. And so, anyway, yes, they they shadow dropped Metro Prime uh, remastered on on the eShop. I, I actually I, I played about an hour of it uh, last night. Metro Prime is one of my all time favorite games. Uh, it's such an incredible demonstration of what Nintendo did t- with Zelda and Mario, which was find successful ways to transition. Games that you can't imagine working in three dimensions, the working in three dimensions and not losing what works so well about those original games. And this is definitely they're calling it a remaster. It's probably like somewhere in between what we call a remaster. And re- like those terms are becoming so difficult to parse. I saw someone either on Reddit or 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 somewhere else say we need a new term for what we you and I have been describing, Rob, with Dead Space of what is the the game that is going back to the original game that is attempting to capture how it felt in your head. And that kind of gives you a more, little more leeway than just, you know, making it run in higher resolutions and a, and a sharper frame rate, because there's more going on in uh, this update than, than strictly just getting it to, to run on the switch and, and to look slick. They have gone back and done texture work and they've added uh, like different lighting. Like you, you'll see stages in the opening where, like the tweaks they've done to the lighting aren't just for the sake of making the lighting look fancier because there's new tech, but similar to Dead Space, it's to accentuate what was already there. So like, for example, in the remaster, the, the, the game opens with you escaping a ship. And now the lighting 
which was already sort of like a blue hue in the original, you can see it directionally kind of guiding you through the path of the area. Not in a like, hey, here's the yellow paint in order to, you know, here's the big arrow of what to follow. But more just if you were to take in the area holistically, you get a better sense intuitively of where the player is supposed to be going next. And those those are, I think, meaningful, like very uh, enjoyable, you know, uh, what was the, uh, Rob, we did an interview with the uh, uh, two creative directors of Dead Space. You'll listen to that uh, next week, uh, the original and the remake. And there was a very funny moment in which we asked the creative director of the, of the original uh, about some of the you know, things they were doing with the new one. And he had balked at the term improvements. It was like, oh, well, what's wrong with the original? And then the creative director of the new game was like, no, no, no. We specifically said enhancements <laughs> and the idea was that is a, a term that kind of splits hairs a little bit more that sounds less derogatory to the work that came uh before the other big difference in in this one is uh it has the control scheme the optional control scheme from metroid prime 3 uh which was that was released on the wii and so there are motion controls I quite liked the motion controls at the time on Metroid Prime 3. Also, the game is built around it. If they end up porting that, there are like whole puzzles and enemy designs and boss structures that aren't going to make a ton of sense on a on a dual stick setup. Uh, but I tried to, I was like, oh, maybe the, I would love the motion controls here. And it turns out I don't. There's sort of a, <laughs> there's sort of a lag to them, to the way, to the way it works. Like the best way I can describe it is the, when you're pointing, you have, full control over the reticle and then in order to change the direction of like where you're aiming more uh, you know with more distance you have to get to the edge and there's just something about that that doesn't it feels odd so i switched to the dual sticks you know analog sticks and that works uh uh great uh i'm tempted i don't have time to play this i've been doing the the daddy's days off streams as extremely long games but like why can't it be a 12 hour game like, it's a 12 hour game that you don't have me? the 12 hours for otherwise i don't i don't <laughs> right. if it's the criteria so <laughs> next week maybe look forward to me playing yes. an entire day of metroid Prime master <laughs> maybe we can convince kato to, to finally beat it right kato because you if i remember from the stream right yeah. you made it all the way to the end of it on gamecube did yes. not have enough health and or skill i'm not sure where one <laughs> began both. and one ended yeah <laughs> but what, so, are, what, are, what are your memories of that original game um, I mean, it it was the the game that I had for my GameCube, aside from like Melee, right? Like, and 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 Wind Waker. Those are the three games. I ever <laughs> there were there weren't many. Kato. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I guess, but like there were people would still buy other things that were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but like like that that held me through that entire era, and like I like replayed the like beginning of that game a bunch, and like yeah. I really, really loved it. I, I've seen some like comparison shots, and I'm like, this, this feels like we're in remake territory. Just from like, yeah. I don't know. In my mind, when I think remaster, I consider the like, you know, the music, the musical term, which is like you're taking original things and then like making them for the new fidelity that exists mm-hmm. from the masters. Mm-hmm. And it's like they're not upscaling the textures; they are making new textures. They're not really upscaling the models; like they're making new models. That's like that's enough to call it a remaster. So, um, yeah, I agree. I'm excited to 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 see what it looks like. It, it you seems mean a remake, great. right, Shadow? Yeah, remake. Yes. And this is the problem, right it's, there, they, as they, they are explaining their- the concept. <laughs> just like, yeah, they're interchangeable, though. The, the, yeah. the, the words are so close together. Well, remake, remake. Um, 
Yeah, even though they call it a remaster, I think is where my my mind was going. Well, right, but then but then we get you know you look at Dead Space and yeah. you know what we've learned in playing those games simultaneous is in I think it's very if you're a fan of the original Dead Space, you play the new one. I think you can. There's a very real chance you would make the assumption that Rob and I did, which is like, <laughs> this, this is, is just the game. Yeah, fancy is- lighting effects <laughs> and some quality of life uh, improvements in terms of the interface and ammo, yada yada yada. And then playing by side by side, it's like, oh no, they did an incredible amount of work. There's huge mm-hmm. parts of geometry and level structure that weren't there. That's not this. This is mm-hmm. this is the game, right? And 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 it is really. Uh, I feel like there's like it's more. We've got levels of remake happening, right? I know. Yes. Right? Like we need. <laughs> there is. There is this in between. Like it's, <laughs> it's a, a green it's a, level re- remake, a red level remake. Yeah, I don't right? know how we're categorizing this. Uh, category have five to go remake. Because <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, there's like enough difference there where it's like you're making new assets. Uh, like that feels like you're in remake mm-hmm. territory. Then remaster is like when they take like an old SNES game and give it like a upgraded bad pixel graphics on like a new right like that's a remaster to me in my mind at least square square enix you mean yes yes (laughs) well here's the thing is that those those updated versions usually have quality of life improvements which is why to me like this is this ends up being a false distinction because like even with those like oh we just reported it that's the remaster they usually do a thing or two Mm -hmm. while they're in there and that is changing base systems right like i don't think that the etrian odyssey collection is a bunch of remakes because that's crazy uh but they do all (laughs) add um like individual quality of life improvements to each of those games. Like they're not adding maps though, right? That's like the whole thing with those games, isn't it? That you have to draw your own maps. No, they, they did. So they they, they added the auto mapping system from uh, Etrian Odyssey Nexus is in one, two and three. So basically Mm. they're taking all of the quality of life shit from five and Nexus and pushing it backwards onto one, two and three. Uh, I believe they're original versions and not the untold versions, which is own fucking can of worms. Um, and then they're charging eighty dollars for the for the bundle. Do you want to explain what those games deranged. are? They, I, I so I, we, when we when they unveiled them on the stream, yeah. I, I was telling Kato that uh, during a, a certain era when I was a giant bomb, I, the audience like we had a certain types of games that like the group kind of all played, and I was like, I'm gonna mm-hmm. go out of my way and like really try and understand, if not necessarily like understand some different types of games, so the audience gets kind of a wider view of things. And right. one of them I did was the 3DS Etrian Odyssey game, which. I did not come out of it going, I want to play more Etrian Odyssey, but I did come out of it going, I fully understand why this hits like a certain people where they just go, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> yeah. So Etrian Odyssey is a, at this point, long running series of dungeon crawlers that began on the Nintendo DS published by Atlas. Um Uh, And actually, I believe, developed uh, by Atlas. Uh, And so each game uh, is extremely simple, like the most simple dungeon crawling that you can get. There is a big tree or there is a big fucking hole in the ground and you're going to send some dumb sons of bitches down there or up there. And there's going to be a lot of problems along the way. And each game is like built around the very simple loop of going into a dungeon mapping it out by hand on the second screen of your Nintendo DS. Right. Finding items, uh, finding enemies, and then, like, getting further and further each time, and then, you know, building your gear and, like, building out your party members as you go. They are extremely story light uh, and are really, really deep mechanically. Uh, they 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 are pretty dense, right? 
that is the like highest level pitch in the Etrian Odyssey games. In my mind, I think that they are the epitome of a certain school of like do it yourself role play these characters on your own time game design and i think that they are the peak of that form and it is for that reason that i absolutely love them um the devs have uh, actually a really good like piece of uh writing from uh the old official site for etrian odyssey that like explains how to use your imagination uh and i think that that <laughs> Wait, is what yeah yes elaborate uh here i've um here you go uh this is literally how i play games though uh and it it fucking rules um the quote says how to use your imagination from an old etrian odyssey site when your party stays at the inn overnight what do they eat if you ever catch yourself wondering that then you know you formed an attachment to your characters with Etrian Odyssey's characters, you only give them a name and a portrait, so no matter how you think of the character, it's technically just your imagination. But even in that case, without your imagination, the character is nothing. For example, a Landschnecht who uses an axe might eat his meat with his bare hands and no utensils, but one who uses a sword might prefer a knife and fork at dinner. You might think differently, but if you can imagine a small detail like that, you may find that you enjoy this kind of RPG even more. The essence of an RPG is using numbers to make calculated decisions, but if you invest those numbers with your own feelings, you can spice up the game a little. Think about this. In your party of five, three characters are dead. Two of them are alive, but they only have a couple of HP left and no TP. They're certain to die in their next turn, giving you a game over. Number-wise, those characters are useless, but how do you imagine they feel about that? What kind of people are those two characters who are about to die? Try to imagine things like that in the brief time before your game ends. Are they a Landschnecht and a Ronin who will die facing the enemy and laughing? Is it a protector ordering the weak medic to run with his last breath? The game over screen looks the same every time, but in your imagination, it could play out very differently. The game itself isn't that big of a thing. What you imagine for yourself is much more fun. We hope that the player uses this game as a tool to create dramatic and fun situations in your own minds. That's... Truly incredible. It cost $190 for the person who, Billy Boyd, who played Pippin in Lord of the Rings. Can I get them to read that? (laughs) Oh my God. Is that Waypoint Plus subs? Chime in. Can I, there's not like a piggy bank, but can I find a way to expense? Get them reading that with slow moving entry and Odyssey graphics? Ren, that's truly incredible. That is super. That's a really interesting That's, way of acknowledging something that a lot of games take for granted that and I, I, I articulated this, that I I struggle with this part. I tend to bounce off games that that ask you uh, to do this. And so I've accepted that is not in my wheelhouse, but for a game to sort of recognize, well, maybe all you need is to have it explained a little bit or to yeah. get a little push is really I have found it very heartwarming. <laughs> it's it's incredible because also like. I think that so many games are can be designed with this like this is an afterthought uh, or or, you know, have situations that generate narrative or generate micro narrative, but are not like built around the player engaging with them in that way. And the, the sick thing about Etrian Odyssey is that it's designed from the ground up to let you do that. And like when I play these games, I keep journals uh, for my characters. Like, I, I actively will keep, I uh, will generally pick two perspective characters. Uh, and then, you know, in 
one of the fucking notebooks that I have lying around my apartment, I will fill it with what that character does during their various ex like escapades through the dungeon through the dungeon. And so like they're a great storytelling tool. They're just fun. Uh, and in theory, I would be absolutely thrilled that they're coming to the Nintendo Switch, uh, including uh, the manual mapping system, which they have uh, that they have kept uh, as an option. So you can either do auto mapping or manual mapping, uh, and I'm glad that that option is is there for people who want uh, auto mapping. But I will I would be manually mapping it. The problem is that Atlas uh, is trying to charge uh, eighty dollars for three uh, 20 year old, uh, 15 or 16 year old games. Um, These fans do seem like the kind of sickos that would pay it. <laughs> yeah, that's why it sucks. That's why it sucks. Because oh, no. they, they, they know they've got bitches by the, th- like, no. it, it's bad. Mm. It's bad out here. <laughs> like, they are sold for $40 individually. So if you don't buy them in a bundle, that is 120 US dollars. Are you fucking joking? That's not me? efficient. Are you doing a comedy wait, wait, the, joke right now? The, that bundle sounds like a great deal, then. Hundred twenty points, eighty. Yeah, it's like you made forty dollars. It is. It's exactly like you made forty dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, elsewhere, uh, uh, the, the apparently the war in Ukraine is over. Um, Advanced Wars one and two can now come out. Congrats. Jesus. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, Nintendo was famously had essentially finished Advance Wars 1 and 2, uh, a, a sort of like remake of those original uh, Game Boy Advance games, right? Yeah, there was yeah. a DS one, but I think 1 and 2 are, are GBA. Uh, that were, who uh, who remade them? I'm forgetting the, the studio that uh, they're a noted. Anyway, the, it, the Warren McCain, uh, uh breaks out and... Nintendo takes that as it would be a it would be distasteful uh, to release uh, that game. I think there might have been because some of the specifics of the imagery in in that game. I don't know. I can't remember the specifics, but basically, it gets delayed for roughly a year uh, and is now coming out uh, in 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 April. Um, I don't have any real history with those games. Uh, oh, they're fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like. They're in that, they're in that, like, Patrick Klepek can play this type of Texas game (laughs) sweet spot, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, not too, Mm -hmm. not too, uh... I was not, I wasn't that person back then, Mm -hmm. and then XCOM and Fire Emblem Awakening... Right. ...awakened me, (laughs) uh, to a certain style, and so I, I I am curious to give it a... Yeah. Like, I don't think I'm gonna be able to play Phantom... Brigade, right? That's what it, what it's called. Yes, yes. that is. Yes, yeah. I just I watched Kyle play the tutorial and went, nah. Like my brain, uh, <laughs> it, can't it looks compute. more complicated than it feels when I'm you're going to try. I am going to try. I am going to try it because yeah. so much about it sounds really neat. But it may be the case that it, Advanced Wars One and Two is more more <laughs> my speed. Um, uh, let's see. Elsewhere, somebody amigo announced that said I, that's one of my all time favorite music rhythm games, but. Part of the appeal of that is literally having the Dreamcast Maraca controllers. And so not having that. The novelty was a huge part of the appeal of Samba de Amigo. But it's it's neat to see it uh, back. I'm trying to see uh, Pikmin 4 
was announced. Uh, if you want to have a fun time, people were – it's been long enough from Pikmin that people have forgotten sort of the story and lore of, of Pikmin. And if you read about – part of Pikmin is going out and playing as – in the older game, it's Olimar. I think Olimar, now you're playing yeah. his son. I forget uh, his name. Um, but, like, when you read about sort of, like, the ecology of Pikmin, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is a creature that just – inhabits the body of another and then turns them all into there's not like there's just a lot what? of shit going on i gotta find the tweet i'm not gonna be able to find it <laughs> offhandedly here but like it's a cutesy strategy you know uh you know kind of babies for a strategy game sort of thing the kind of thing nintendo does all the time but makes an excellent one of those and but like creeping underneath is a hellscape of, of ecology that uh it's like uh, a cutesy last of us where you're playing from the perspective <laughs> yeah, of like yeah. cordyceps yeah yeah, yeah okay yeah. um the game that uh one game that uh kyle and i were very excited about because it'll give us a new chance to not play it but to t- think about playing it is ghost trick phantom detective yeah uh and all on all time game i've downloaded like three times now yeah did i did i get it for the ds yes did i get it for my ipad sure did am i gonna get it for my steam deck you betcha will i play it i don't know but i know it's like some of people's favorite game yeah. of all time not just like a good game but an but an excellent game ren you your eyes got kind of lit up no you have a, no? no no i don't have any association with fan uh, mm. with uh with uh sorry ghost trick. with ghost trick i have i have different associations listen i won this nintendo direct <laughs> i won this shit <laughs> because of extra odyssey about what's no that was that was that was a that was a uh ended up being a bit of an l <laughs> what is your I'm, I'm excited about other things what's your w fantasy life Okay. okay. I, am, I I I fucking the girl love the girl who life. steals time an all time great subtitle. I am. What is fantasy life? This is the game where you like you work. So fantasy life is effectively a Animal Crossing is an okay reference point, but so is something like a Harvest Moon or a um uh like one of those style of game. Basically, it is a game where you do a bunch of different professions uh and there are like a bunch of mini games for each of them and it follows the story of this character who is, you know, building their life uh in this in this little world. The original game was like probably like 50 hours long uh and is one of my DS or 3DS game favorite right? 3DS games yeah. in existence. Like it is uh, it broke me on the genre. I can't play a Stardew Valley. I cannot play a Rune Factory. I cannot why? play what's, any of that what's, shit. What's so interesting about this one? It Everything clicks together so well. Like, everything feels better than mm. all of those other games, right? The actual minigames feel better. The combat feels better. The way that characters interact with you in the world feels better. Like, I... It is it is just a step of quality above everything else that I have not been able to get into anything else in the genre. I tried to play Rune Factory Five earlier this year and I couldn't, uh, or early last year, and I just like it did not land for me even a little bit because Fantasy Life broke me. So you say combat, and I'm like, but there's yeah. no combat in Animal Crossing. Obviously, this is like that 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 like second step of that second step of like those types of games that do have some sort of combat, but isn't that, is that part of the like appeal basically is that there's something else other than the like daily tasks or whatever that you're doing to like maintain your life. 
it's not daily tasks, right? Mm. Like it is, it is, it is, it is mini games, like moving through different professions, right? Like you go to work as a carpenter for, you know, X amount of time and you are doing carpentry during that. There is a carpentry mini game and you're like getting materials and all of this shit, right? And, and all of these systems are interacting with each other. So like when you're going out to go fight a monster, you can also be like, oh shit, that's the, that's the tree that I need. (laughs) I've, I've been looking for that tree for a minute. Cause I want to make a really nice dark wood table <laughs> and I'm going to get that tree in addition to this big dragon <laughs> at this point, the, the tree has become my priority over the dragon. The dragon is blocking me from the tree. Do you that also get materials that from the dragon though? Is like yeah. a dragon tooth also going to help, you know, put that uh, on a mantle. On a sword. In your- <laughs> make a sword out of the dragon tooth or make a nice dinner. Do you want to make a nice dinner? I do. Out of that dragon. Great. You can do, you'll make a delicious dinner out of that dragon. <laughs> um, and so all of this interacts together really well. And also like, it's just a nice energy. Is They're it just though, charming. Ren, I have a question. Yeah. After what does after 1000 years, the restoration is about to begin. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, well, I mean, that's the fuck if I know. Well, listen, I, 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 I'm guessing that there's an apocalypse. Like, this is a post-apocalypse game. And so this one, the difference between the original fantasy life and this one is that this one seems much more oriented around building things and, like, building, like, a town and a place over time that is not just your shit, right? Like, you are not going around decorating other people's houses in the original fantasy life. That's their business. You are not getting involved, and what I'm the vibe I'm getting from this new one is that like it is set in a post-apocalypse where people are finally starting to put shit back together, and so like you are helping people make the buildings that they live in. Um, and there is a there is a there is a Dragon Quest builders energy to it, which you know what I'm here for it. That is that's again massive W. Like people really like those games. I I I almost uh, because it was sort of. When I've talked about my issues with Minecraft, which is like, do whatever you want. And like, I know, but like, could you like tell me what to do for a little bit? And I, for a lot of people, Dragon Quest builders seem to <clears> satisfy <throat> that sort of itch. It was like, I want to build things, but with a little bit of uh, direction and store, like structure around it. Um, but I just, I just never got around to actually, actually playing it. Yeah. Uh, and so that is, that is, uh, that was my biggest W of mm. the, of the Nintendo Direct. Uh, the smaller W was a uh, fashion dreamer. Yeah. Yeah. I really like fashion. I like clothes. There's like, I don't, there has not been a game. Did you play Style Savvy? It. That's what I thought it was for a second until I saw Made that by it the was. same devs. Oh, okay. It's a spiritual well, successor that, to Style Savvy. I see, I see. That was a DS game, right? Style yes. Savvy or 3DS? DS and then 3DS. Um, mm. The problem is that I got into clothes and fashion well after the Style Savvy era had passed. And so I have been sitting on the sidelines, <laughs> hungry, <laughs> v- voracious. For a game that actually lets me like have reasonable clothing options that are like, you know, thought of by people who know what clothes look like. Cause like oh, I have so much respect for character designers, but sometimes I just want a nice sweater. Sometimes mm. I just want to put a character in a sweater and I don't I don't need all that. I don't I don't need I don't need the spikes. Let me let me let me fuck with like like real world fashion. Cause I think that it is extremely fun in and of itself and like a joyous experience. So that is, that is my smaller W. The was the, what was like the framing of the original, the framing of the new one is like build your brand, like be an influencer. And I like that stuff didn't exist as like a, 
popularized concept when when that original game game came out. So what even was like it was a boutique. Okay, ah, running a shop. That makes yes, sense. running a boutique. Okay. Um, so you know, collecting things from multiple brands, trying to curate a particular energy for your shop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, last reason uh, worth talking about uh, from the direct uh, is they finally they announced they have not delayed the Legend of Zelda: <laughs> Tears of the Kingdom again. Yeah, um, in case you were and hoping. I, and I think I think we can I think we can be reasonably confident that it's actually going to come out. They they did the telltale thing of <clears throat> turning on pre-orders. Because it gets it gets messy to delay games once you start uh, mm. accepting mm-hmm. pre-orders. The backends get like the backend systems are bad for that on most platforms. Though, so like once you start taking money and you start shifting the dates in the background, that can that can get messy. So uh, this is also the first game that Nintendo was going to charge seventy dollars for. They put out <clears> a statement <throat> to <throat> some publications uh, that was essentially this is not a across the board like price increase. They you know for example the Metro Prime. Uh, remaster was $40 uh but that i th- i think going forward you know a new pokemon a new animal crossing a new mario the games that you would consider sort of nintendo's top tier releases will be $70 and then you know below that will you know, uh be be different different pricing ranges for for games uh the trailer it's you know somehow showed more without showing all that much more. We I, I can't tell if this game is a mashup with Banjo and Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. Uh, famously a, 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 a beloved and also maligned entry in the Banjo and Kazooie series because it ditched all of the platforming that people liked to the first two games for what if we built cars instead? Which admittedly a bit of a tough pitch for uh, uh, kind of a pivot for the series. I, I They didn't show vehicle crafting but they showed vehicles in this game that don't seem like the kinds of things a designer spent six months tweaking. Like, well, I built a John Deere lawnmower that's going to get me across like, the plains. There's and then also, Here's the thing. Yeah, here's the thing that I didn't notice last time when we were watching it live. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where Link pulls a thing from a from a lake, you know, the way you would do with Magnesis in the first game, using mm-hmm. one of the different, it's like green this time. Um and then later, and like immediately after that, you see him in like basically a big weird cart with two big wheels, and you realize the thing right. that he pulled out of the lake was a wheel. So it looks like you might just be slapping this shit together like physically in space, like if, instead of like if you, through a menu or something. If you look at the uh, at the actual like vehicles really closely uh, or relatively closely, uh, there is joinery on them that like connects the different parts. That is like the least hand modeled shit I've ever seen. Like it's just green goo yeah. that is holding the p- parts of the car together. And, and no designer in their right mind would be like, let's just have it be green goo. Unless I just, I just, I'm just hoping player. it's there's player like creativity as opposed to that, it will be ultimately a little bit disappointing if it's like, hey, you open a chest and here's a, you found a new crafting no, recipe. It definitely, for, yeah, it definitely looks like it's going to be. I agree. I agree. It definitely. Slap these items together. Mm-hmm. Look, yeah. Look at these four fans on this piece of like metal, whatever. That's a, yeah. that's like one of those metal doors that you see throughout Breath of the Wild one with four fans on it. <laughs> well, it's, and it's interesting because. Uh, you know, obviously we all adored that game, but at a certain point, getting around on the horse, like, wasn't that interesting right. <laughs> to, to do. And 
Uh, so the notion of this game is obviously more expansive because there's a verticality to it. There is, we don't know quite how big the like upper world of this, of this game is, but it's probably enormous. And so the fact that they would address that by not just, you know, one way you could do it is how other games do it is like, you just got fast travel points or space elevators that get you up and down. Um, the notion that you're going to be able to build things that have variable speeds and purposes, like is link going to have a garage? <laughs> yeah, that's my John. That's my John. Finally, yeah. Zelda can be rescued, and the fate of the kingdom decided by a race for pinks between yeah. uh, Link and Ganondorf. Yeah. Oh my god! I hope because this is you know this is the the blessing and and the curse of looking at a trailer and picking it apart is mm-hmm. and also specifically yeah. with doing this with Nintendo games is what if they did this and then so frequently. <laughs> As brilliant as they frequently are, they don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like Breath of the Wild though. Like something feels right about like floating that tire over to like a a, a piece of wood and sticking it like just slamming it together mm-hmm. the way you would like you know when you're moving shit with magnesis in that game. I feel like it. Hell yeah, it, that feels like it's primed for that, right? Like it's. I feel like they're there with the physics in that game to like well it's do already kind of how like machinery seems to work on that world where it's like here's a bunch of like <laughs> yeah. arti- like, to- like recognizable tools and forms all the machinery doesn't exist it's the shapes of like the <laughs> the end product yeah that like that that animate together this is also like to me the next step of the physics thing they did right like right. The, the thing that makes breath of the wild is the physics modeling the question of where, what do you do with that physics modeling? To me, the next logical step is you let people make vehicles or yeah. you let people build things because like vehicles are a thing that players can build and that have the most possible physics interactions and will generate the most bullshit with like <laughs> the least amount of like complex input. And right. You can, you can get wacky real quick and that seems to be like a n- natural next step. And honestly, the, that first one that I, that I screenshotted the one where it's like the the door with the four fans on it is a thing that people kind of made in the first game using the auto rock balloons, right? Like you can attach those things and make a fl- a floating platform. And it's like there's just what they saw that player like like interaction with the thing, and they were like, "Wait, what if what if we let them really fuck some shit up?" You know, Nintendo just sitting around watching endless uh, <laughs> yeah. Breath of the Wild gifts <laughs> on Twitter. And he's like, oh. I mean, they meant they meant for the auto rocks. It wasn't like they were glitching it, but they meant for the auto rock things to like float things, right? So it's just like, right? They already have part. They already had parts of those physics in there to like work just watch, from. Just watching one of those uh, speed runs where Link turns a tree into a fucking rail gun, yeah, and then just himself missile. directly yeah. through the window of the castle, and they're like, you know mm-hmm. what? Let's just make that. Let's just make that explicit. <laughs> <laughs> Give Link a rail gun. Oh, God. <laughs> You're going to be able to make that boy so, go so quick. Yeah. You're just going to be able to fucking obliterate that twink through the air. It's going to be it's going to be great. Uh, yeah. So it looks great. Um, you know, it's they keep each of these trailers definitely seem like this might be more story heavy. I can't tell, you know, like what I still feel like they are showing us absolutely nothing. I think there is so much more to this game that is not even here. I expect at some point we'll probably get a direct that you know, kind of like gets more in depth on like what's actually happening between now and, and May. I am, I am one person uh, that is definitely holding out for proper dungeons. I like, I loved breath of the wild, but I have to admit 
the shrines and the sort of like lead ups to the different bosses were dungeon adjacent, but I missed my let's spend four hours solving puzzles. Maze. Yeah, yeah, I missed that. Would you take a sky island that is a dungeon? Yeah, I think for me that the, 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 it's like I don't think of a dungeon in necessarily like hyper specific terms other than I want several hours in an authored area mm-hmm. using the tools in, in right. front of me. I think it's because and again, this is like the nature of how I play games, like so much of Breath of the Wild is is a really well structured playground. But sometimes I'm like, I kind of just want to go to the the thing I, I came to Zelda in the first place for is like. I just want to solve some cool puzzles in like a, a really st- strict authored place. And mm-hmm. I think there's a really easy way they can accomplish both of those. If they don't do it. It's fine. I will still really like this game, but that was definitely a piece that I, I missed from breath of the wild where they'd have sequences where you would do stuff like that for a little bit, but it was definitely not what you would normally think of as link needs to collect five objects. He's going to go to a gate, go inside and, you know, spend three to four hours here, uh, right. working their way through. But I do feel I wouldn't shock me if that's all here, and it's just like, hey, I mean, they've been making this game for six years. You know, it's a, this is an entire this is a game that was originally supposed to come out on the, or the first game was supposed to come out on the Wii U. So they have spent an entire console generation just tinkering away at this. And so I understand some of the disappointment I saw from the trailer of like, kind of just looks. Like a big Breath of the Wild expansion pack, I think that's reductionist, but I also think that is probably selling the game short and that Nintendo is just being very careful about what they're showing and that there is probably a lot more to see from this game. Plus also a very expensive Breath of the Wild expansion pack. <laughs> Whatever, fine. That sounds <laughs> awesome too. <laughs> yeah, also like, I don't know. The other thing is that it really seems like, the last thing I noticed in the trailer was the fact that like, it seems to be pulling every ounce out of the Nintendo Switch. Whew, yeah, like yeah. the draw distance. I think I think every are... ounce. I think you're being generous, given that I think the switch is probably going to be in default uh, in terms of the <laughs> withdrawals being made on it. Uh, that that's kind of that's kind of my concern. Where it's like, oh boy, this is really taking some wizardry. The thing that's going to get robbed by a forty ninety is finding a way to to emulate <laughs> Tears of the Kingdom on his PC. <laughs> I saw people talking about that that they were like right. thinking about like you know uh, you know switch emulation is in a in a state where you yeah. know people are can actively think about like shit maybe I don't have to play this on switch we do not vice lawyers we do not endorse nor point people towards how they would accomplish <laughs> such things but you cannot talk about the switch and where where its hardware sits without pointing out that a lot of people are doing things like that where maybe they're buying the game I've seen people frequently well bought the game. Time to go play it on a platform that I actually enjoy. Um, um, so I guess at the other end of the spectrum from the energy of the Nintendo Direct, mm-hmm. we have the release of Hogwarts Legacy uh, this week and the way various outlets have handled the game and the review process around it. Uh, Patrick, you were kind of following the editorial decisions being made around this game all week, and I'm curious... Which ones jumped out at you? Yeah, so this you know, this came up a little bit with Forspoken, in which that was a game that people were worried about how that the quality of that game was going to be, and Square seemed to be pretty specific about the outlets it was handing codes out to. This with uh, Hogwarts Legacy, that was even more specific and more hyper trained on 
what outlets are we going to give code to and in what context? Um, we, for example, were not offered a code, although I'll say, I believe this is the case. I don't think I'm mis- mis- misspeaking. At one point, er- much earlier in the Hogwarts Legacy press cycle, like there was some reach out for Warner Brothers with sort of a caveat that like, hey, if you don't want to do this, like we're not going to take any offense. Like they seem to understand the outlet and that they were just doing their job to do a reach out, but that like, Hey, it's, it's cool. Um, and so this is a company that I think no knows like what they have in their hands to some degree. Um, anyway, so it was interesting to note uh, the outlets that did get uh, early code chose to run coverage of the game specifically in review formats, how they sort of handled it. You have like a outlet like Polygon that did not run a review. Well, my understanding is they will have one, um, at some point, but they ran a bunch of uh, guide content. How to choose houses in Hogwarts Legacy sorting quiz. How to open eye chests in Hogwarts Legacy. Can you change your appearance in Hogwarts Legacy? And then an article that goes alongside that. Why is Hogwarts Legacy, a Harry Potter video game, so controversial? Man, that is a SEO uh, headline right there. Uh, GameSpot uh, ran no review. Um, I believe they are running a review eventually. But they did put a big promotion on their front page uh, about donating to a, a trans uh, charity. They also had an essay written by uh, a, uh, a trans editor, uh, uh, Jesse Earle, uh, in which they really meticulously broke down how we got here, J.K. Rowling's rhetoric. If you're unfamiliar with how we arrive at this place, I highly recommend reading that piece. It's a, it's a does some really important, important walking you through the discourse, um, uh, you know, and, and to quote from, from the piece, uh, uh, yet the difference between Lovecraft and Rowling is that supporting Harry Potter can't currently be separated from supporting Rowling herself, despite some people's desire to uncouple the two. Rowling still sits at the head of the franchise, benefiting not only financially from every sale, but through its popularity. The more relevant Harry Potter remains, the more platform Rowling is given to perpetuate anti-transgender language. Further, while the books have finished, Rowling still works on Harry Potter, penning the scripts for the continuing Fantastic Beasts franchise. Harry Potter is not only intrinsically lit. Linked with, but supports the platform of a woman that used to inspire love, who now uses uses her words to inspire hate. On top of that, Rowling herself has used the continued popularity of the franchise as evidence that people support her views, despite this not being the case. As a result, I can't in good conscience support this game, no matter how well I wish the developers and their own personal endeavors. By buying the game, I'm not just supporting them. I'm supporting Harry Potter, which supports Rowling herself. GameSpot also, crucially, ran a bunch of guide content. So see the other headlines um, from Polygon. GameSpot uh, did get code in advance, and is running a lot of, you know, go see a bunch of my reporting I've done on uh, guides work and how it is the kind of like foundational uh, finance foundation for a lot of uh, small mm. and big websites. Uh, the Gamer uh, is a website that uh, specializes in not only games coverage, but also guides content and had a piece uh, penned by uh, Stacey Henley, uh, who I believe uh, runs the site. <clears throat> Quote, I did not expect much from games media on this one. Still, I was surprised by how much I was let down. As regular readers will know, the gamer is not covering Hogwarts Legacy with the review, nor, at a much bigger revenue loss for us, guides for the game. I know other sites will have struggled with weighing up that sacrifice or may not have full editorial control over the games they cover, but reading the glee at the reviews, the delightfully excited tweets, the claims that they are the true victims of an intense bullying campaign by meanie beanies who don't understand how magical Harry Potter is, I don't think that's as large a factor as we assume. Uh, IGN ran a really straightforward review, and that did the classic sidebar um, with uh, something called, it was headline concerning J.K. Rowling. I'll just read an excerpt from it. Uh, the elephant in the room with Hogwarts legacy is Harry Potter's creator, J.K. Rowling, whose comments about transgender people in recent years have left a sour taste in the mouths of many current and former Potter fans, both at IGN and in the world at large. 
this has driven some to call for a boycott of the Wizarding World altogether. You don't need to use their fucking proper wizard, including Hogwarts Legacy. Though Rowling was not directly involved, and there are good reasons, both in game and out, to believe the developers at Avalanche don't necessarily share her views. Regardless, IGN ha- always has always and will continue to champion human rights causes and support people speaking with their wallets in whatever manner they choose. As critics, our job is to answer the question of whether or not we find Hogwarts Legacy to be fun to play and why. Whether it's ethical to play is a separate but still very important question. So just as in virtually all cases, we're choosing to expose and address the views of the franchise creators separately from our consideration of the work of the hundreds of game developers and evaluate Hogwarts Legacy as it stands, leaving behind this, leaving the behind-the-scenes context to be considered in addition to that evaluation rather than in place of it. So it can be weighted uh, according to your own values. Games Radar also ran a piece uh, and guide content in which they, uh, in the review, highlighted very all the way at the end, uh, acknowledging uh, Rawlings' uh, views uh, and said, well, they put a black character in the game. Uh, and then I think the last one that's worth pointing out uh, is is in Gadget ran a piece uh why I'm reviewing Hogwarts Legacy. I think if you've been watching any of the discourse this week, you've probably seen some excerpt of, of this piece. Uh, I'll quote uh, from a little bit, and this will be the last one before we get into the conversation. Uh, I'm currently about 15 hours in Hogwarts Legacy, and I'm barely scratching the surface. I'm having an incredible time. This feels like the RPG that Harry Potter fans have been waiting for, rich and alive and absolutely packed with magic. It's slightly frightening to write that down, knowing the condemnation I could receive. It's an extra light version of the dread I felt while publishing literally anything during Gamergate. But this time, it's more personal. The hate would be coming from people I actually care about. I've been a video game journalist for the past 13 years. I'm a bisexual woman, and I'm a big old, I have a big old Harry Potter tattoo next to an anti-turf tattoo. I feel uniquely positioned to care about this particular topic, and to that end, I have a quick story to tell. It involves uh, literary internet culture in the early 2000s, and I hope it illuminates factors that entwine the wizarding world with the LGBT plus community while demonstrating the vast divide that's existed for decades between the fantasy and its creator. And then the piece goes on to explain a very common story of uh, a lot of folks who grew up and uh, were, were queer and found themselves in the fan fiction world of Harry Potter, in which a lot of people did a, a lot of reclamation work to try and make that that place seem more inclusive. But that is sort of a, in broad strokes, the, the kind of range of ways that the media responded to Hogwarts Legacy ahead of release. And I guess the last note would be this game is also breaking concurrent records on Twitch. Um, it is the most watched uh, a single player game on Twitch in Twitch's history, uh, I believe. Uh, people have been able to get access to the game a couple of days early, either through code distribution from Warner Brothers or uh, if you paid extra for the deluxe edition, uh, you got to play the game a couple of days early. So that is where we stand currently, at least, as of this recording on, on Hogwarts Legacy. Now take a big sip of my coffee. <laughs> The IGN one stands out, right? I think. Um, well, the, the IGN, IGN one, the IGN one, one is in some ways like so. Real quick, I like I recognize that Waypoint has is uh, not totally inured, but like we don't face the same pressures. We don't have the same business no. model as a lot of sites, and so uh, the way I would put it is Waypoint. When we talk about like coverage. Um, we speak more from an affirmative position than a negative one. What I mean by that is like 
<laughs> we don't cover a lot of games that we would we like and would like to cover. But like we're small staff. Uh, a lot of what we do is uh, kind of time consuming. We spend optimistically four hours, five, six hours a week, like talking to each other on podcast. OK, Ren's making a face. Maybe more. Uh, if uh, we include streams, I've done the math. It's like 20 to 24 hours, not including the hours of like prep work that we do. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, it's like, it can be upwards of like 20 hours a week. It's, 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 it's a significant amount. Um, it's the job. Yeah. Yeah. It is the job. And so what that means, what that means is though, like when we're talking about like, uh, making something a coverage priority, that's actually a, a higher bar to clear. It tends to be something that like, we have to really want to cover something to carve out time for it and commit ourselves to doing it. We do not come from a position of like, we try to review everything that's like kind of new and noteworthy. Uh, and, and just take a big critical like sample size time was IGN tried to review just like sort of like GameSpot did try to review just about everything under the sun those days every Sims gone. expansion pack right that's like yeah. some of the quintessential examples of that is no nobody is reading these but somebody might so you assign someone to it and hope and, and especially in those days act of the traffic would would justify a reason of spending having someone spend six hours play the Sims expansion pack and write 600 words on it (laughs) and like those days are gone but like you can still say like okay that's in ign's kind of dna that they just like for from their standpoint like it is more of a like pointed decision to say we are like not reviewing something because in general the default is if it's sort of noteworthy anyway they they will um where i think the 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 odd thing that i find about that statement though is I don't know if I can say whether I, I don't know whether it had an impact on the review, but the weird thing is uh, it it says like we're going to separate these two things, right? Like, hey, there's upsetting context around this game and uh, it's been divisive, you know, uh, in our in our own editorial house, as it were. Um, but our job is to say whether something's fun, whether it's worth the money, et cetera. And we're going we're to separate that from uh, the views of uh, J.K. Rowling. But the problem is, like, I wish you luck with that, right? Like the the problem the problem you face is it's like it's like the 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 meme of Mo throwing Barney out of the bar, uh, where you can be like, and I'm gonna consider Hogwarts Legacy apart from J.K. Rowling's like transphobic tweets and and public persona these days, and that's a that's gonna be a separate issue. We're gonna we're gonna draw a distinction from there. Uh, okay. The problem is that it's still the Harry Potter universe, and it's not like Rowling's not like a character who there was some like wild twist, and she turned out to be like, you know, it was like <laughs> I guess the equivalent is like say randomly years from now, so like J.K. Rowling was like facing a murder beef or something just out of nowhere. There'd never been a whisper of anything, but like years later like kills somebody this isn't that scenario where it's like oh there's this like wild event that happened years after the fact and wow it's like kind of crazy to reflect back on her work and and think about uh where that eventually heads no like the minute she started sort of talking uh and became enjoying like being a public figure what she said was like troubling and then when pressed on it it became increasingly reactionary and so there's really no reason to think Oh, but like, I'm sure that 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 magical universe she created was was cool, right? 
because even in that magical universe, like it's shot through a ton of pre- tons of prejudices. Like even if you're saying, "Well, I'm going to leave aside," you know, who J.K. Rowling is now. Okay, that's fine, but like racism and a kind of uh, oblivious. Look, some people just love being slaves, and well, right. Like, so this is that's... the thing. It's like like racism and like <laughs> cis white privilege are to Harry Potter what Christianity is to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Like you can't you can't really say like I'm gonna and I'm gonna talk about I'm gonna talk about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but I'm not gonna talk about any ways this might be reminiscent of Christianity. <laughs> And that's kind of where, like, the Potterverse ends up, because this is a, like, even in its own day, when it, like, before a lot of this stuff became uh, subject of a lot of, like, ongoing controversies, the racism stuff and the anti-Semitic tropes that were deployed were points of, like, discussion and contention uh, around that universe. And so this notion that the minute you say, but I don't want to get into anything about, like, J.K. Rowling's politics... I don't think you can do an effective critical job in like if you're like in in a weird way. If you're if you're thinking about like I am going to consciously exclude that stuff from my analysis. You're going to end up excluding things that are in the game from your analysis as well. So like even even that even that position of. You know, hey, here at IGN, we review games. That's the business. But we're going to set all this other stuff aside I don't think it's baked into the universe Potter. Yeah. Right. Like no matter who made the game, no matter what they believe it's, it's kind of there and you kind of have to, to wrestle with that. I'm not, it, it, to me, like it, it feels like, the, like in the process of drawing that line, the review itself becomes a real, like features list approach to the game. The, the thing that gets me, about all of this. I hate, I, I'll be honest. I hate every part of this fucking situation. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I am, I am astounded that the, we have found a discourse that has managed to make me mad at quite literally everyone involved, just, just across the board seething. And like the thing that gets me about the IGN review and, and that gets me about a lot of these things and, and about the end gadget piece specifically is that like, you don't have to post your fucking L's. If you believe that you are taking an L, that you are making a moral compromise in covering something, in writing about something, in any of it, don't go to other people for absolution. That is between you and the good Lord Christ. Like, it is not my job. I think it's a to... lion, actually, in uh, Lion, the Witch, and yeah. the Witch. Good point. That is, that is between you and the good Lord Aslan. Like, we do not have to be doing this. It is not anyone's responsibility to give you absolution. And you know what? If, like so much of this is built around people's conflation of the media they consume with their core identity uh, and with the ideology that they believe in and their sense of values, like their personal values and their identity, right? Which has led to this, like, to me, utterly deranged like practice of going and being like, I'm so sorry I did this, or... I did I did the transphobia carbon offset where like I donated $70 to a trans charity because I bought the video game which like cool I'm I'm glad for you. I didn't know, need to know about either of those things. You do not have to tell me about either of those things because one neither of them really matter. Like tr- like true like truly on a material level for people, both of those things barely matter. Point A. 
Point B, there is not a causal relationship between those two actions for anyone but you. The causal relationship exists in your own head and not for other people. I don't need to know about it. You do not need to post your L's in front of me. People make moral compromises all the time. And then they go about their fucking days. Because that is what being a person is. We live in the midst of a violent machine, and like, sometimes you make a choice. And that sucks, and then you try to make up for it in your day-to-day life by doing right by the people who you can actually interact with. And like, the whole situation, from the discourse about it to the text itself, feels extremely, extremely silly to me. No, so... There is so the, one of the weird things that's emerged in some of this is also so when I'm being charitable, it's like as, as you put it, like a lot of people like back is against the wall. We have to do a lot of things that like you know maybe we wouldn't want to. But what's striking to me is in a lot of these things, there is a real desire to return to a state of like childlike innocence about Harry Potter itself. That's like alongside this that also strikes me as really weird. Well, I mean, it is it is consumption as as identity. Right. And like the minute that you are asked to go beyond that and like really consider that maybe something you like might suck, people completely fall apart at the notion, which is like truly the first step of thinking about this. And like that's the thing that gets me is that like if you look at this video, okay, I don't care if you play it, like truly, like as I will, if if you are looking for a trans person to be like, hey, I don't care if you play the video game, sure, I don't give a shit, but other people do. And you have to decide whether or not what that, those people say to you actually matters. You are making a decision about what you want to do and who you want to listen to. That is That is building a set of values. And like, If this video game is so intrinsic to your identity that it is willing to, that you are willing to shape your personal values around it, I think that requires a long conversation with yourself about like how you see yourself in the world and how you construct your identity. Because like, that's wild. That is, that is, that is wild if Harry Potter is that essential to your selfhood. Well, and, and also like the, the notion that, you you should somehow that somehow it is healthy to be like there are there are people there's there's a group of people who are taking an activist stance who are like we are saying that like to support this game is to support jk rowling and her her transphobia and from our perspective like like if you engage with this if you promote it if you're if you're buying it like what you are saying is that you care more about that uh than you do about the points we've raised and if you disagree with that if you say like yeah i hear you but I can live with that disapproval. I'm going to, I'm going to play the game. Okay. That's, that's one thing. But what is so weird is, is how many arguments are like, but don't, but don't tell me that you, you, you think I'm wrong, right? Like so many of these arguments are like uh, the people who have, who have sort of drawn the line, me having crossed it, please do not call me out for having crossed it uh, is a very, is a very strange stance. I mean, so much of, Oh, sorry, Patrick. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead I was going to say, so much of all of this is is about grounding accountability. Like, what we people talk about accountability a lot. Like, the, so much of the post, like, Me Too movement and, and the, like, the last, like, five years of public discourse has been about how do we hold people accountable, uh, particularly public figures, right? And, and so much of that has be- become this, like, completely 
incomprehensible idea of accountability, to me incomprehensible, that builds accountability as like accountability to ideology as opposed to accountability to the real people your actions affect, right? Like part of this like makes me think back to um, uh, the, the, the letter we got last week, uh, or sorry, not last week, on Monday, uh, about tech workers being laid off in Seattle, right? Where like the personal and the political are, of course, interlinked, right? But they are not so interlinked that like, your specific interactions with people are instantly and, like, permanently political. And so, like, at the end of the day, you are accountable to the people who you are actually interacting with in your life. And if you build accountability around some, like, vague notion of ideology, you are going to drive yourself insane. And like that, it feels like that is the point we have gotten to where accountability is to like a vague idea of public ideology as opposed to real people that our actions affect. And which is why the like weird, I'm going to walk up to someone after five years and disclose some fucked up thing I did three years ago. That's silly. You don't need to do that. And it makes the other person's day worse. Yeah, I think the, you know, looking at, you know, the the engagement one is the best example of it, but the, the fact that when you start seeing someone go through sort of an identity checklist, almost like they're creating a hit point count, it's like, all right, so Potter, uh, Hogwarts Legacy is negative 12 HP. It's like, all right, I'm bisexual. Like, I got an anti-turf tattoo. Like, how much does that get me up, like, to take the hit? That stuff's a little odd because I feel like that's so revealing in and of itself is, like, you're putting your guilt on the table. Like, you are saying, I do feel ashamed of what I'm doing. Here's how I'm rationalizing it. And what I find so curious about that in the realm of the media specifically and you can see this happening in the more like a lot of what Ren's talking about is like the performative discourse is like got to go on Twitter and explain, you know, even got folks like Paul Tassi, like a writer I really respect. Be like, I'm going to play the Hogwarts game. It's like, OK, so go fucking do it, because actually, at the end of the day, there, there is a lot of service work in games media. This game is going to sell at this point. It was conservatively going to be 10 million copies. It's going to sell somewhere between 20 and 30 million copies there. If your bosses, if your job, if putting food on your table requires you to look up, how do I open the treasure chest in this game and write an article about it? Go do that work. No one is going to yell at you. How to get more do- house elves, Hogwarts legacy. <laughs> yeah. It's like, go to, if you have to review the game as a game, then go do it. But like, no one's asking you, you're not helping anyone. This is not as, okay, as Ron was saying, like planting like a trans tree, like to like the carbon offset by like self flogging yourself. Like, through, like you're not just go do that work. Media is a shitty business. We are constant. Like we are so lucky that at Waypoint we get to sit here and hopefully not finger wag as much as be grateful for the fact that this is the kind of conversation we can have around the game as opposed to having to do that work in order to pay everybody. Patrick, you and I assigned ourselves the job of hanging out and playing Dead Space together for a month. Yes, like that to, is, an increase, like to an increasingly lower yeah. viewer count on each stream. But that is the whole, like, that's our business model is, but I'm not saying that to, to, to like, yeah. but like, you know, it started out as like the first day a thousand people watch and now we're at like three to 500. Like, that's fine. But like, that's because that's, that's what our model is. And we're very fortunate to have an audience that allows us to do that. And I just find the whole, you got to go do the service work because the game's big. And that's what the business model of your, of your business 
uh, that your media website allows. Look, man, it's hard enough out here. Go do it. Like, I got you. But the I need to declare much like Dennis Dyack asked people on NeoGAF yeah. 15 years ago, too human, for or against. <laughs> like, you don't need to do it. Like, and that's what it feels like sometimes is like. If you want to no. have an excuse, be like. We had to because of because that's how we get paid. Or don't say anything. <laughs> like it's it's into it's it, it's like it will be into it that like yeah. that is the job. Like of course, like if if what you are like when people have to spell it out. Like I support trans rights. Like just go support trans rights. And if you have to write a guide, your personal actions in your life will reflect. Like people will understand what you had to do to pay your bills. It will not hold that against you. But all this other stuff is just I find endlessly infuriating. Yeah, like at at the end of the day, again, you're accountable to the people who your arms can reach, right? Like if someone in your life comes up, if you write a guide and someone in your life comes up to you and is like, man, that shit sucked. And you go, I'm sorry, I had to pay my bills. Unless you are dealing with someone who is so online brain poisoned that they cannot see through the through the cloud of posting that blocks their eyes every moment of every day, they are going to say, okay, yeah. You did need to eat. Yeah, that's true. That's a that's a really good point, actually. And like, I don't right. know. It's just it's a lot. A lot. A lot of the pressures are put on like this individual, like the the individual like authors of these different articles. When like those decisions aren't being made by them as to whether or not you're gonna do the the coverage, right? Like that is made higher up at well, that point. And even then, it's like most of those, you know, because the business model is like tenuous like most of those decisions i mean are sometimes kind of though right the engadget piece for example like not yeah. just to keep returning to that one but no, i feel like it's so epitomizes it is at no point in that piece is does it explain hey here's how i'm getting here this is the reality of the work mm-hmm. like it is just i really like this game and also here's why i'm justifying right. playing it you get the sense that this writer can write about what they want and no there's no lines in here about the business of the media. Like, here's how here is how my identity intersects with this universe and it intersects with the the business realities of writing about games. Like, that's not what that piece is. Like, it's missing that chunk if it wants to get there. Right. That piece and is very ins- close to being like, uh, Harry Potter is queer, actually, because AO3 uh, was, was really popping <laughs> yeah. off during its day, which is true, but it's like, it is true. we can't, like, we can't go back. And I think one of the issues with that, that piece really is like so much of it is about I want to go back. I want to like, and, and through this game, I want to go back. It's like, it's not, it's not uh JK Rowling's universe anymore. It's ours and always has been. And I'm sort of sympathetic. Like the I, notion that, and I've read this a lot from people. Like this was not my experience. I'm just a normal, boring white guy that like read a little bit more, you know, because of Harry Potter. But the amount of people I've talked to, like found like community and identity in the Harry Potter universe, and especially in the, the fan fiction universe, is I cannot understand what that is like. Like, to find yourself and safety in those spaces where you can get them, if you were not finding that in your real life, I imagine this whole process is a whole lot harder um, than it is for me. But I, when you read a piece like that, and, you know, to your point, Rob, it's just like, but we can't go back. And that that seems extremely hard to separate yourself from that part of your life. But, you know, that's that's the choice that's in front of you. I guess that like this might be me, but like I had a pretty tight relationship with those books, like to, to, to put this in context. Right. I learned to read with those 
Like I was, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. That's a lot of people though. The <laughs> amount, the amount yeah. of people in high school, like in middle school and high school that never touched a book unless at school demanded you to that read like, Oh, it's, it's more, it's more Potter. the age thing. For yeah, it's, me. It's, also, it's, I was four years old. It, like yes, Rob, when I say I learned to read, I don't I mean know, I learned I know. to read like middle. I mean, like I was four years old. No, I know. I knew that's what you meant. I knew <laughs> okay. that's what you meant. That's, that's, why, why, I that's why Rob melted <laughs> in front of our mm-hmm, faces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Right, I was four years old reading those books because I was I I got I got the good reading autism, and so I I was reading those books from an extremely young age. I had some really important relationships in high school emerge from watching those movies with a group of friends. Right, I I I am tight with it. However, I think that if whether or not you consume this piece of media is what leads you to a to a moral crisis of faith with yourself, then you should sit with that. Like if you are, if you are listening to this and you're like, damn, this makes me feel really bad that I, that I want to play this game and can't, uh, or feel like I can't. I think you should sit with why that is because like, I used to have a really like tight relationship with the media I consumed in my identity. Uh, and then I realized that it was a hollow value system that didn't actually leave me accountable to any other human beings uh, who I interacted with on a daily basis. And like media can be really important to you. Media is wildly important to me, but I implore you to not make it the foundation of your identity because it will leave you high and dry in the end. It, it, it will always do this in time or something like it. And like sit and think about what you actually care about for a bit. There's one other dynamic of this that um, it's been in the back of my mind as in the back of my mind as well is like in the discourse around this game uh, when you, when you're thinking about like how you're covering this how you how you're handling it I think you're also going to have to be aware of like who's going to show up to the conversation like what is going to be the vibe around coverage uh who is going to show up who's going to be like passing your piece around etc because i think you know having said like uh you know if if in general like you your 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 shop is pretty agnostic in terms of where games come from you just like review a lot of games and you assign good critics to to do good work fine whatever but what isn't unique about a game like this is like you're going to attract a lot of people who are going, who are looking for ways to like attack trans people. And you are going to attract a lot of people who are also going to be uh, like trying to find ammunition for arguments that, uh, you know, like nobody really cares about uh you know matters of bigotry or social justice when it comes to comes to media and i and like i sympathize to a degree with the fact that like sometimes when topics like this arise they can't help but be you're kind of walking into a minefield no matter what like if you're even if you were like with the best intentions like trying to sit down like we're gonna have a serious critical discussion about what this is etc um Especially if your outlet, if your outlet like allows comments or something, or if there's ways to pe- like, if there's if there are ways for people to sort of weigh in or in, engage with your regular community around stuff like this, um, 
you like part of the cost benefit analysis also has to be who is going to be showing up to the conversation and what are they going to be doing? And if the review turns out like positive as in the case of the IGN review, got a, got a, got a rave review. How is that score going to be taken? How is that? Like you don't have a choice over it. Uh, You know, it's going, it's going to be taken out of context. In what ways is it going to be instrumentalized? And I think that's another Part that's another dimension to this uh, when it, when it comes to thinking about like what an outlet should or should not do with this. Uh, I think you like there's a bit of room reading that has to happen that is independent of like how do what what do we make of of J.K. Rowling? Independent of that, we also have the what do we make of the discourse that or that surrounds uh, like anything where trans like trans people or trans issues are visible. You know, and the, the, maybe one of the last points I'd make is, you know, when I've kind of looked across the last week and really just seen a lot of hurt, it's just a lot of people sad and upset over a lot of different things as this has played out. Um, If it's easy for us to sort of just sidestep the whole, like, well, we don't have to cover it, but in the event that you are, you know, the whole point that makes the IGN review so disappointing is like you said, you're just, you're handing a weapon to a bunch of right wingers. It's like, look, this game is so popular and so big that they had to write this kind of review and the progressiveness, like couldn't, they couldn't stop it. They could just be snarky on social media. If you're going to do it, embrace the whole thing, right? Write about what this universe means, what this person means, how it intertwines. Like I think it was very easy in my like initial tweets earlier this week. Maybe were a little too, uh, you shouldn't cover it at all. But you also shouldn't hand over a product exclusively to right wing weirdos as well. And so there, I can see the reason and the work in like the right critics, the right people addressing this game and addressing it as a game and as a culture, cultural moment and. That's important because then when those reviews appear, they include that context and stripping it of context is, I think, is worse than, you know, not doing it at all. Uh, the, the other thing I'll, uh, to build off of this is that, like, people are going to engage, like, the people who have already decided that this is an object of a culture war are going to engage with you in bad faith. They, they just, mm. they are just going, like, that's the thing. You're not going to convince anybody. In terms of like, is is this tech? Is this is transphobia as a, pro- a problem? Is this text a problem? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is like my 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 point of frustration with all of this is that like, there's that quote. Uh, is it from Umberto Eco about anti-Semitism and like anti the, the language of the anti-Semite, which is that like it's a game to them. It is it is a fun game that they're playing, and they do not have to play by your rules, whether or not you claim it. They will. And like th- that at the end of the day is 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 so much of the frustration about existing as a leftist or, you know, caring about um, social progress and like in, in media is that like it's so easy for other people to just throw that shit out the window and just say words at you. Because if you care about words, you have all in their mind, you have already lost. And like. That's why I'm so frustrated about all of this, because at the end of the day, none of this means anything. 
none of this, none of like Harry, this game is an object of discourse because it is an object of discourse. And I don't know what to do with that. And I guess that like, if you struggle with this and struggle with this feeling, uh, organize in your local community or like try to educate people. Like find, find your values anywhere else and find your like the work that you do anywhere else other than what you consume. And if you cannot apply your values to your job, find somewhere else to do it. All right. Uh, we're going to leave it there and we'll be back after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. Hey, remember, Waypoint Plus listeners get this podcast ad-free. Learn more at waypointplus.com and see how you could have filled <laughs> that break with nothing but blessed silence. There's still mute. Every time yeah, we talk about silent? the break, there's music. They yeah. just don't get an ad. Do you think it's just like go, do they just go into a, a void? <laughs> a like, void. A, like space? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, well, like, welcome like, to the... The Waypoint Plus moment of reflection. It's the Sardaukar chant from Dune. <laughs> Think on what you just... <laughs> yeah, after the last discussion we had, that might have been appropriate. <laughs> Think on what you've just heard. Imagine the podcasters sitting in an inn. What do you think they're eating? <laughs> I thought for a second you were doing a severance bit. <laughs> Your podcast Oh my is god. The- your podcast is kind. <laughs> when your podcast comes on the playlist, people are joyous. Your podcast is left-leaning, but approachable. So, I've had the house to myself, mm-hmm. and it's been Last of Us time all week long. <laughs> Now that we're done talking about Harry Potter, let's talk about a totally uncontroversial, easy to engage with piece of media created by someone who doesn't make their politics explicit in their work. Go check go check out Emmanuel Myberg's excellent Last of Us Part 2 piece that ran a couple of years ago. The Last of Us, baby! Well, at least uh, at least there's more of that in Part 2 than there is in Part, part 1. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> What so, is, so you you watched yeah. the part of the pilot, uh, I think, you know, a couple weeks back when they get a chance to to finish it. You, I assume you are now caught up through episode four, mm-hmm. I think is where, where we at. The fifth one airs uh, this weekend ahead of the Super Bowl. Yeah, and... Uh, Wait, ahead of? Yes. When's HBO who, it, on Sunday. No, I mean, um, what time? <laughs> six, six, uh, six, seven, oh, okay. like, depending on... 
your, uh, doing your time a, zone. Early but drop. Well, they they always do that, like because they always run their shows on you know their big premiere with stuff on Sunday night. So in the past, they have like the Oscars. They'll probably also drop that episode a couple of days before, so people don't have to mix it up. Anyway, Last of Us, Rob, you episodes, four of them. Yeah, I mean it's like it's it's really well done. Um, it boy, it turns out uh, Peter Pascal, just the the master of the hard man guiding a small child, small being through a harsh universe. Like he's just got that on lock. <laughs> he's been Pedro he's been, Pas- Oh, please cut out. I was just gonna say he's been um, what's the word? He's typecast, typecast? at this point. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's all he can play now. <laughs> But as a context instead of an acting style. <laughs> um, his performance is, is, to me, my favorite part of the show. Like, I've been, I've been watching this show uh, with a good friend of mine. Uh, we watch it every week. Um, and it, his performance, specifically in the last episode, was, was, was me being like, <laughs> okay, damn, I am... I'm fully bought in on this care on this character, like I and and Pedro Pascal's performance because his like awkward meandering through a really hard conversation about violence was. This, hey, just I'm gonna yeah. proceed. We're gonna spoil these first four episodes. Yeah. I just don't want to have put a cap on how we're talking about it. So if you don't want to, if you're not caught up, just skip ahead. But we're just gonna I'm gonna uncork it for everybody so that we can talk freely. Sorry, continue. Perfect. Uh, is is a tremendous performance. I have I have many many qualms with this show as a text on its own terms, uh, as an adaptation, uh, as as all of these things. But Pedro Pascal's performance is not among them. He is he is stealing this show. And like even if I hated everything else about it, I would watch it just for that performance. There are so many. So there is a beat that. It's when they um they pull off the road into the woods and he he's they've they've made basically a, a cold camp uh to, to not draw any eyes mm-hmm. and everything. And Ellie says something to him about, like, do you think we're safe? And he's he's been ready to fall asleep and he's like, yeah, we're safe. But then we see his eyes open and he just stares off into the tree line and you can sort of see the change come over him where he's like. But uh, but I'm not sure. And, you know, and, you know, before the cut, you know, he you know, what's about, you know, what she's going to wake up to, which is him standing guard uh, through the through through the night. And there's there's so many little little beats like that where there's a lot happening with him. Because his job, like much like in the game, is as as you put it, Ren, like he's not a great talker. The the right words do not come to him very easily at the at, at the right moment he struggles to sort of put these things into words but a lot of the performance is watching him think about stuff and wrestling with wrestling with his his paranoia and his distrust his is his feeling that like his certainty that the worst is always just around the corner um and that there's only like little little moments that mm-hmm. he gets a break from that and they're gone as quickly as they they arrived uh while we're talking about performances i also want to shout out uh the actress who's playing ellie uh whose performance is uh i think at times like truly tremendous i specifically in the in the fourth episode again uh i think that there are some character moments that feel very weird with her um 
stabbing the infected in the head in the basement is a is a really weird moment for that character. I loved uh, that moment. Though. I, yeah, I, like I, it's it, it could be specifically about that sequence is, mm-hmm. and I didn't notice it at the time until I saw a GIF of, of people like kind of homing in on it. Was like she moves the knife around, and you kind of get a glimpse into. I don't know if it's humanity necessarily, but you see the infected who is like stuck under rubble and his eye is just following the knife. And especially that being a, you know, that happens in episode two, right? Or is that the beginning of beginning of three? Beginning of but three. like, but it's but it's before she has to, you know, it engages in, a, in, a, in an act of violence that becomes like one of the pivotal points in, in the fourth episode. And like th- those parts seen in, you know, uh, in, in, in connection with one another. It's just a really beautiful little bit of like stopping and having a moment with creatures who are largely absent from the show uh, so far, which I think is a a really wonderful detail that the mm-hmm. show is being very careful about deploying um, as opposed to the game in which that is every 15 minutes you are back into the mix with the infected. Right. But the, that's the part of the performance, though, is that like Ellie has a hyper fixation on violence. Like the, the, her character in this in this adaptation has a true hyperfixation on acts of violence, whether it be perpetrating them herself, uh, asking other people about how they've done violence previously, and and so much of this is what leads to what I think is probably the strongest moment of the fourth episode, which is where Ellie is talking. She gets the gun. Joel finally lets her have a gun after she shoots a man. They have an awkward conversation, and Ellie is looking at the gun, excited and smiling. And then she breaks like 30 seconds later. Like there's this like awkward smile on her face throughout the entire interaction where Joel is asking her about like, have you done violence before? Are you okay? And she's like, has this awkward smile the entire time. And then she has the gun and she puts it in her bag. And then there's this one moment where all of it shatters and it feels so the whole performance comes together for me in that moment where it is like, this is a kid who has experienced trauma like like deep trauma, who has done violence and has spent the entire time of this show trying to emotionally work through that. And it has been manifesting in a weird hyperfixation with violence uh, because she's trying to figure out her own shit. Or the uh, deflection, right? Like, I think that's it's something about the like the joke book, which is an element from the game that is right. in, in many ways in the game, it feels like that is more about Ellie getting something out of Joel and something that, and that is still true here, but I I think because of the performance you're getting in this, it often feels like in here, it is more Ellie deflecting or working through like her own really complex emotions in a way that I didn't get a whole sense of playing the game, but I think is a little more forwarded here. And that's really frankly, because they, they take the violence much more seriously here because it is not combat oriented because it is not a video game. I mean, the fact that you don't see Joel, like you get, Largely, Joel's like first violent actions he has with you know a couple of the characters when the the car crashes like is from Ellie's perspective. It happens mm-hmm. off screen, and it's so much more powerful for then when those couple moments of on screen violence do happen because it is not at that point in the game you have killed hundreds, thousands of like that exact sequence which takes place in Pittsburgh instead of Kansas City. You crash in. You know, into a to like kind of a supermarket uh, or like a, a kind of gas station sort of situation, and then you proceed to violently murder like it's like thirteen or fourteen people. people. Yeah. It's yeah. so many people, and again, it's the nature of the game. It's the nature of the kind of stuff that Naughty Dog does. 
But I found that sequence to be so striking in which it's part of what I found enjoyable about the adaptation is they're getting something out of me, the person who was just watching this mm-hmm. adapted differently. And I found the way they treated violence, both by not depicting Joel's own acts of violence and taking more seriously Ellie's reaction to her own and the violence around her to be really powerful. One of the things pointed out by the person that I've been watching this with is that like, you know, the person watching with this with honestly feels like Ellie is kind of a freak uh, in the show in terms of her hyperfixation on violence and, and feels like that is being brought out of her character much more in terms of like her taking joy uh, in acts of in acts of violence. And I, the thing I was talking about with her is that like part of me wonders if that is a way of translating the fact that Ellie does violence or forms of violence earlier in the games than in this show. Because, like, Ellie doesn't, like, kill a motherfucker with a gun. But, like, correct me if I'm wrong, in combat, she does participate as, like, distractions and throwing bricks before... It's an escal- so one of the escalating things throughout Last of Us 1 is her growing participation in the violence. Right. Like, there's a there's a moment in Last of Us 1, and it's like, she comes flying out of the frame... Uh, and jumps on the guy's back and stabs the shit out of him in one encounter. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time in that game that you've seen her like do that, where it's like the crazed knife wielding rhesus monkey uh, approach. But it's like now she is all in. And so like one of the things through that game is her her escalating participation and like the literal like increasing bloody handedness of mm-hmm. what she is doing uh, across the game. That's like one of the one of the uh, sort of meters that fills across that game. <laughs> right. And the, Killing the, unlocked. <laughs> I think the only way you can do that in this text is to have her talk about and, and like the performance dwell on violence more because otherwise like that escalation is going to feel really weird. Um, Though I was, so I, like, I'm kind of with you. Like for instance, when she was posing with the gun in uh, episode four, where she's like checking herself out in the mirror with like a gun. <laughs> so good. Like at that point you realize like, her coat even looks like Travis Bickle's coat in Taxi Driver. Like the entire, like she is this close to doing the "you talking to me" a uh, mm-hmm. bit in the in, in the mirror. But the other thing, I guess, that I would I would say here about where she stands in this world is there's been a bit of this with like I think it's maybe most pointed with Joel because like he does sort of default to a reflexive like you know, the whole arc with them is like his increasingly like, like paternal uh, Mm -hmm. feelings toward her. But in this world, like having the capacity to do violence Mm -hmm. is to have like agency and freedom as a person in, Mm -hmm. in, in in some ways, like it is like people are trying to like when Joel's like, you shouldn't have to do that. You're, you're too young in this world. It's very like, you can't be that sheltered. Like this is, like look at the stuff she already sees look at the, she got bit by a fucking zombie like you know to every time that someone's like oh you shouldn't have a gun right now i don't know i'm sitting there i'm like i think she probably should i think everyone maybe should have a gun in this in this world and uh, on that same note uh, from like a like a character perspective she went to fedra school like she yeah. was at a military academy like that's the thing that i think is not landing I don't think that the show makes it clear enough that Fedra school is a military academy. That is what those words mean. Marlene says as much, uh, or, or Ellie says as much to Marlene when she's like, you sent me to a military academy. 
Um, I feel like we're gearing up for a big prequel, right? Uh, you know, like sort of like flashback with her to set hopefully some of that context. I think like yeah. Fedra, like the the in the fourth episode, they, you know, the bandits you run across in the game do not have a faction. They are mm-hmm. just bad people trying to take advantage of you as you're going through Pittsburgh. And the show actually gives them, you know, they overthrew Fedra, like they, but it's still you don't really under. I think one failing, it's not a failing yet of the show because there's plenty of time for them to address it. But certainly something I am waiting for is mm-hmm. like, where's the fascistic elements of Fed, like where, like where is the real sense of like what was happening and why anyone would overthrow Fedra and feel like they are justified. We are getting elements of that in the fourth episode of yeah. like, you know, hey, you used to, you know, how do you motherfuckers feel about, uh, you know, uh, you know, sacrificing your neighbors to mm-hmm. get a bottle of wine. Like there's bits of that, but I still feel like there's a lot of layers for it to pull back to make it really clear to the audience what was happening there. Yeah. I also think that like the other thing that they're going to flash back is like, it, it's pretty clear that Ellie killed Riley, right? Like let's, let's, it feels pretty clear that that is what happened. Uh, is yeah. that Riley got infected and then Ellie had to kill her or kill them. I don't remember uh, Riley's whole deal, but um, that is, that it feels like the, the setup that we are, uh, that is that is that is going to get paid off like pretty soon here. Um, I, I like. Pardon, Kata. I forget how that actually plays out in the game. Ellie just runs, right? Or doesn't have to like actually, but like still, right? Like they're they're together. Whether that's what happens in the game, that sure feels like how they would play it in the show. Right. <laughs> she she does am, not kill the person in the game because yeah. uh, this is the conversation I've been having with the person I've been watching and who is like, uh, that is a, a change. Time. That would be a change. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it is really surprising though how like almost one to one it is. Like that shootout in episode four where they where they drive the car into the yeah. little mini mart. Like yeah. with the exception of the fact that there's a much smaller group of people they're fighting. Like it is it is so funny to see the TV show version of it. And it's like it's the same, it's like the same scene, but like just kind of scaled down a bit differently. Or like the little bit where um he, you know, Joel, boost me up. And she gets through the vent to open the door, and it's just so goofy to see all that stuff uh in you know in the game in the in the tv show uh sort at of, some sort point of they gotta let out Ell, put ellie on a raft right yeah and then joel's gonna have to we already push, have the push. i can't swim i can't swim I <laughs> right up. right like i feel like if this show does not have oh. a great moving sequence by the end it is a failure of an adaptation that is what i am asking that is why i'm asking i think you have to like to, to your point, Rob. I feel like moments like that have been deliberate, right? Like they, there are moments of exploration or framing of what the the characters are doing. That is not just we're lifting a shot or a sequence from the show, but is we are lifting the interactions from from the game in a way that it doesn't go on for overly long. It's not as though we're watching <laughs> Joel solve a, a crate, sho- you know, a shoving sequence. Though I'd love to see them try. But it is interesting in those moments where I think that goes over the head of, you know, the average audience member. But if you know the language of games, it is hard not to read that as not an ad, not even adapting. It is just lifting bits of exploratory design logic from mm. from video games and putting it right into here. Well, it produces a really effective tone. Like it is it is such a good piece of shorthand there's a reason that games use it right and like it is it is it is cool to see like you're right patrick it is cool to see that like translated 
I will say so. Like I was, uh, I was surprised how much I was won over by episode three. And like, it was one of those things where it had been so widely praised. I was sort of prepared mm-hmm. to not enjoy it as much. Uh, especially because I do. The one thing I will say is I think, uh, W Earl Brown's, uh, take on bill, that character that existed in the game. Yeah. I really great. liked, yeah. um, I really liked the idea of, him being a challenging character to actually warm up to in a lot of ways that mm-hmm. like the, the, I guess the, the thing I would say is that, that episode three is really well done. And I like, I think uh, Nick, the government is, is terrific, ter- terrific in it. Uh, you know, he, he does, he has a great take on, on a very different sort of uh, a bill, but also it is much more like sanded down to be like, he's a much nicer character. The relationship is, it's is too fast. So positive. Right? It's, 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 you can see elements of where that character could have been more abrasive, but be, even though the episode is an hour and 15 minutes long, I think it's the longest episode in the series so far. That's not nearly long enough to let those moments linger because it's so much more interested in getting to the romance part, which is, mm-hmm. you know, interesting in its own right. But I'm with you, Rob, that, the I I have no problem with where they took the characters differently in terms of the relationship here, but I think it it would have felt more earned and be more interesting if we lingered longer in not just immediately pivoting to it turns out the prepper was right uh, and having just like very brief moments of friction between those two characters and just sort of yada 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 is it to get to the more you know the, the the romance part yeah I mean like the three year time skips are I think. Uh, the thing I was talking about, the person I was watching it with again was like the three or time skips are just like it, they needed to they needed to cut one of them and spend more time yeah. in because the, it's the same conflict over and over again. Uh, and I think that like the middle time skip you don't need. I think that you need the uh, one uh, where they're actually having Joel and Tess over. I think you need the one where he makes the uh, he makes the garden for uh, Bill. That's it. Like those are those are the ones you need, and then, but this this kind of leans into the a thing I've I've been thinking about, which is that like they're trying to do that with Bill, right? They're trying to make him feel abrasive, and the way they're doing it is using again violence as a shorthand and his reaction to violence as a shorthand. Like I think the show tries to make Bill abrasive by having the shot of him watching his CCTVs and clapping when an infected gets shot in the head from a trap he made. And he's like, it, he he is gleeful about every time something interacts with one of his traps and is killed by it. And so, so much of the show has been using violence as a, as a shorthand for like complexity uh, and like character depth uh, or like character, like some kind of moral conflict that it is starting to, it is starting to wear thin on me, the ways in which like violence is being deployed. Uh, to very quickly explain who and what a character is. Well, that's the last of us, though. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that is, for better and worse, you know, that is the, the lens through which this series views its characters. Right. And that only becomes so much more pronounced in the second one, right? I will say, I don't like most or all of the storytelling that occurs in part two. I think there's a world in which you can take that material and do something much better than what Naughty Dog did with it. And that this series so far 
does suggest to me a path with that material that if not, you know, I don't know that you can save it, but it's far more interesting than what is in that video game. Yeah. Um, and I'll be curious to see where where they go with that, because, you know, essentially without spoiling part two, like is is really about if alley and violence and that could be interesting how they did it <laughs> was not and increasingly boy you know i had forgotten that the last of us part two lost its co-director um whose name is escaping me mm. uh rob is gonna look it up they were profile they were part of a profile in the la times yes bruce daly uh, bruce daly uh, yes bruce daly. um he uh he is featured in a profile in the la times about The Last of Us television show and the history and the legacy of the game that includes a lot of quotes from Staley and Druckmann and uh, Craig Mazin uh, is really worth reading because, you know, like Bruce Staley has been written out of why this game, this story was important. People don't talk about Bruce Staley. They talk about Neil Druckmann because he became the public face of of Naughty Dog and The Last of Us uh, upon Staley saying, these games are hard to make and this studio has a bad legacy with labor i'm gonna go do something else and it's not credited in the hbo show granted some of that is just like the way crediting happens like in, in hollywood is different than it's not as simple as erasing the legacy of bruce daly but uh uh that it is weird how naughty dog became the neil Dr- Druckmann platform yes. and i didn't really quite fully reckon with that until i read that profile i was like holy shit yes like this was a like a th- really a three-headed, you know, sort of dragon. It was, you know, Amy Hennig and Neil Druckmann and Bruce Daly in varying roles of leadership and creative direction. And then it just became the Druckmann show. And part two exemplifies uh, that to a, to a large degree. So uh, the person I'm watching with refers to him as Mr. Neil. Uh, and, and the thing about Mr. <laughs> Neil. Um, Sorry, I almost just <laughs> a coffee all over my screen. She's very funny. Um, the thing about Mr. Neil. Um, is that like, she keeps being like, did they make the first game good by accident? And like, that is, that is the, that is, I think a lot of people's reaction to two, which was like, damn, I don't know if this dude actually has got it like that. And it is interesting to see this project, which he is very closely tied to, um, make, a lot of interesting decisions uh, about adaptation that I do not know if they always land uh, and, and, and how it is. I think that it being more drucky at points is, is, Oh no, I got the druck all over it. <laughs> is, but it's is just the, import- like the importance of having, it. having a co writer, co- you know, a collaborator. Mm-hmm. I think that right. is deeply missing from, and obviously there are other, you know, not ex- but you know, you know what I'm saying here. Like I think, I think that is missing in part two. And even if this one leans Druckmann, because obviously, like it's going to, like he's right. been deeply involved in the creative process of this. If you imagine a world in which it was Druckmann as the showrunner of this, this is a vastly different show and a much worse one, uh, yeah. most likely. Because I mean, Craig Marzen, the actual showrunner, not Mason, Marzen, yes, uh, said as much. Where I mean, he didn't say as much that it would be a bad show, but he was like, "Yeah, Neil wanted to do the Bill and Frank story one to one with the game, and that would have been worse. That would have been yeah. that would have been demonstrably worse." Um, I think that like The Last of Us as a TV show is at its best when it is not looking at Joel and Ellie, uh, and it is engaging with like 
it is doing the thing that TV is good at, which is having this roaming cinematic camera that shows the world and the way that people interact with each other. Um, like the little aside in Indonesia was terrific. Yes, it's where, the best like, part of the show. Like, it was the best the part of the country's show. leading expert <laughs> on uh, like on fungus, fungal infection is just in this short little aside forced to come to terms with the fact that like the end of the world has come. She says, you need to bomb this city into the, like it ever that one, again, a remarkable performance. It's, it's so good. The way mm-hmm. she delivers the word bomb with like the emphasis on the second B she says bomb. And it's like, it, it's brutal. And then she says, I would like to be with my family. It, it was the best part of the show to me so far. Like the best like 10 minutes of television we've gotten. I don't know. I, I will say like, I'm not, I do wonder if, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. I would, I, I like, I liked, uh, the bill from the from the from the original game so much that I would have been curious to see what the version of the episode that focuses on that relationship in that mm-hmm. way because like I think what's the the sort of the 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 big divergence that happens in episode three uh, in in the TV show is that like fundamentally it becomes a, a show about aging right a show mm-hmm. it becomes a show about like disability and infirmity uh, you know as the years go by and it's beautifully done it's um, it's 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 a really terrific episode but it also ends up um it's where they sort of get away from the conflict that clearly exists between the two characters in the game which is that like bill can't help but be controlling you know the sort of person who walls off their town in an array of elaborate traps to create their like survivalist paradise can't love unselfishly can't you know what i mean cannot like let a person cannot grant to a person like uh the you know the the freedom and and uh the freedom and individuality uh they might want and i really liked that you know we we don't see much of that we just sort of see the the after effects of that in the uh in the game but it would have been it would have been an interesting take on that uh it would have been interesting to see the show sort of i don't know like wrestle with the scarier aspects of bill like what it would be like to be with this guy um to like have him be your partner and like you know you're grateful to him he's your protector maybe you love him but also at the same time he's kind of built a big terrarium for you well like the whole you know the way the the show shoots the kind of like the, the raiders sequence where he goes out just not hiding just with a big assault rifle and the show shoots it as like, this is really cool. Look at, look at all this cool shit Bill is doing. And then comes in and the, at no point is it, is it portrayed as like, Hey, it's a little unhinged. Like this guy's well, just standing out. Portray- I think it's portrayed as unhinged. Well, yeah, but then he immediately goes in the door and like his partner saves him. Like, I just, I feel like th- there's, there's not enough of what you're talking about there in which I don't know. I thought it was shot closer to look at cool Bill than it was, uh, hey this is sort of weird what bill is doing out here 
the show also dwells on the moments of compromise. That is what the time skips are depicting is the yes. moment where everything comes to a head. Right. And that's, and this is why you need to cut one of them and, and spend more time in the uncomfortable bit, because it is always Bill making the compromise in every time skip. That is the conclusion. It is uh, taking the garden. It is uh, beautifying the town. It is all of these things, which paints the relationship in a very different light. Um, and I think, you know, paints their relationship in a, in a light that is. It is not less complex because it is less dark. It is less complex because it isn't giving Bill the time to actually be a person. Uh, and instead focusing primarily on Frank. And like, I, I, I like the love story a lot. And like, I think that the. The show invokes the imagery of AIDS very explicitly. And I think does so to like warranted ends. I think it, I think it's really hard to make the imagery of, sorry. I think it is really hard to make the imagery of an elderly gay man pushing another elderly gay man in a wheelchair. Um, land and feel genuine in something that is about anything other than the AIDS crisis. And I'm, I was genuinely surprised that the show manages to pull it off, at least from my perspective. Um, yeah, I like overall, like it's, um, you know, Patrick, you, you alluded to before the show that you're, you're getting into the bear. And I think in terms of like power, like power rankings, like this is, this is a very watchable show. You know what I mean? This is very enjoyable, but also it's a popcorn show. Like it might be, you might say it's like, it's, it's a really good popcorn pop, show. Yes. Yes. It's but a really, it is. really good pop. And then you have like the third episode, which gestures at like a show that could be more than that, but mm-hmm. doesn't want to be and is what it is. And I think taken in that kind con- it's not, you know, the walking Ted was the walking. It was incredibly popular. <laughs> walking and like Ted. walking Ted. <laughs> Love that show. But you know, I mean like, and this is a, re- does the Ted Lasso survive the zombie apocalypse? <laughs> <laughs> know, we'll save him to that third season. But the, you know, that show is not very good. Had an incredible pilot. The pilot is tremendous. It's a movie all its own. Enjoy it. Don't watch anything after that. And this is what if, like, a, what if you had a Frank Darabont, like, you know, but made a whole show. And I, like, that's, it's not surprising that this is maybe the biggest thing HBO has ever had. Like, there's a reason it was really resonant in video games. I'm not shocked that it's really resonant outside of there. And you just got, yeah, but like, I'm with you. It's like, also keep in mind, like, I think in the next episode, we're about to get a bloater. And it's What's like, that big that's monster a, under the ground. That's got to be a bloater KC. underneath there, yep. right? Like, something's about to, like, The Last of Us has essentially a bomb type enemy. And I, they talked about it in like the see. first episode, too, right? They're like, that people say that there are big, big ones that throw spores at you. <laughs> I cannot wait. It's because in many ways it's going to be the most cartoonish enemy that's going to be introduced yeah. into a world that is otherwise trying to like really what ground if, it. What if it's all red herrings though? Because they've changed how like the spores thing isn't the, really the thing anymore, right? The networked intelligence thing or the networked like mm. uh, this is what know, I'm saying. Intent, I, I like, assumed yeah. it was like a tendril that had you know the way that like tree roots will fucking buckle 
Yeah, and but Tato, something's got to emerge from that crater. I think a big boy. I think a big boy there. is coming out of there. Boom, boom, boom. It should be a big mushroom. It's got to no. be. Or like, I guess the only thing it can be is like actually secretly the city's like been so undermined. Like the colony of fungus is so extensive that what that crater means is the entire city is like about yeah. to like literally fall. It's like a, like a Ghostbusters Earth. two situation, yeah. like a river, a river of infected instead of a river of ooze. It's either Chekhov's big monster or Chekhov's rhizome, and I and I yes. lean towards Chekhov's big monster, not Chekhov's I want the big rhizome. boy. I want the big Me boy. Too. Me too. Especially Just- because like this show with with the visual language of this show so far. I think it's going to be, I think it's way easier for characters to interact with a big boy than it is the rhizome. Yeah. What I could like, I hope they go. I hope this is one of those places they try to kind of do a one for one thing where it's like, <laughs> this is clearly a boss encounter and you're going to see all your different little perspective characters like opening fire from different quadrants of the arena to try to like draw the aggro. Like I, mean, I get to, this is you know now looking at the the creature design I pasted you're like it's not hard to imagine how that's gonna no yeah. and he he's just gonna be big yeah. he big. just so is the implication that like when they when they go over to look at the ground like he's just kind of butting his head up over and over again <laughs> like let me out <laughs> speaking of though Kata mentioned the the change from spores to to tendrils to me that is the worst decision the show has made so far. I think that, like, I understand why like from a production kiss? standpoint. No, I think the kiss is one of the most gratuitous things uh, that I've seen in TV in a long time. And I think that it is it is a, a genuinely despicable directing decision yeah. to to in to invoke the image of sexual assault for shock value and then do nothing on an with HBO that. show. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, that is the HBO thing. And I think it sucks. I think it, I think it sucks yeah. ass yeah. because like. So much of like pandemic and like uh, uh, pandemic fiction is about the transmission method. The transmission method is the thesis of the text in so many cases. In Contagion, the show is a the, the movie Contagion is about the transmission method first and foremost. It's where the sh- uh, the movie's critique of globalism comes in, and it's w- really weird. Contagion is a weird bad movie. Um, <laughs> It isn't, mm. but go on. It's not no, no, no. I, well, I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's a weird. I think it's a. I think it's a well-made movie with really weird thoughts about how the world works. That's more accurate to say. Which is, which is just getting to the point that, like, I think that spores being airborne says something about the world, and changing it to the tendrils says something very different. Uh, and I'm not sure what it's saying yet because the show doesn't seem like it knows either. Because the invoking the sexual assault imagery is not thematically coherent with anything else, and I don't know what they're trying to do. It yeah, feels like such a wouldn't okay. it be gross if actually there's another thing. So the the kiss thing pissed me off, but also the entire sequence. Like, so she's she's flooded the room with gasoline and knocked over a crate full of fucking grenades in the middle of that. Why is she playing around with an exhausted Zippo? Also, you don't need to. So Justified understands this. Justified has a sequence where a character is covered in gasoline. And Raylan Givens, Marshall Raylan Givens, explains that it's not the flame hitting the gasoline that causes it to ignite. It's the vapors. 
And like the whole notion that like she's got to get like some sort of torch device to hit the like it's very video game logic. Right. But like the entire sequence is there's like multiple ignition sources that surround her that avoid like that would have avoided this moment. But instead, we like end up having everything hinge on the Zippo uh, so that she gets back into a corner and like tendril kissed by the zombie. And then it finally ignites. And it's like I feel like there were like a dozen different things in this room that could have like worked around this problem. But the situation is very like the artifice is palpable to create this moment where uh, this gross thing happens. And also just like undercuts to me undercuts the character. And like, it's just like, a wildly disrespectful thing to do to a character before killing them is showing them unable to unable to even walk away from the thing that is about to do violence to them. It just, I don't know. It, it, it sits so fucking sour with me. Yeah. I like, I honestly like, you know, in the game, Tess has a last stand, right? Like in, in, in the game, it's like, Fendler, all right, right? Fedra fuckers. And yeah, yeah. like they get her. But when you come into the room, like there's a there's a there's quite a few dead Fedra goons uh, in, in that room a, as well. And here it's like, damn, Tess just couldn't figure it out. Good. <laughs> she finally she finally got lucky with the with the lighter. <laughs> um, yeah, that that just a just a small thing that uh, that that definitely bugged me. But yeah, I do think in general, too, the. um it's just the spores kind of made sense, like floating spores, gas mask, all that kind of made sense. It's kind of weird in this one, but I do, I do dig the notion that like you can just set, set foot on a mushroom and <laughs> a bit of fungus, and then like boom, all the uh, all the zombies like know where you're at. That's a cool addition. I do, yeah. I do dig that. It's, that it's a, it is. I thought that Mm-mm. was sometimes in the game, but not always in the game. Mm-mm. Not at all. I could have sworn Mm-mm. I was like, they no, it was more that like you'd you'd get into a combat encounter. And they, the screaming would attract all of them. Like, right. it was like you know, the, the whole thing is the sound. sound thing. So yeah. it, it functions similarly in a smaller space where any small amount of sound is going to set everyone off right. and act as a as sort of a uh, an audio network. But no, not as not as far as like reaching across a city. I mean, it certainly seems like one of those things they're setting up for. Hopefully, it will pay off and make thematically more sense going on. Like the limited times we've even seen the infected doesn't really give them a chance. Again, like that's why the kiss. Mm-hmm sit so poorly other than all the other reasons we've outlined is well that was one of the few times where you picked your moment and like that it didn't work yeah um, yeah but when we get the big boy all is forgiven <laughs> <laughs> but what if you just got a bigger and worse kiss <laughs> oh, no. no there's nothing to kiss here the big boy is there's now nothing. a tentacle monster oh no <laughs> All right. Uh, we're way over time here. Uh, real quick, Red, anything, one thing from the next fast? Uh, anything just really on your list where you're like, hey, this is a fucking video game. Oh, God. Uh, I'm going to shout out the smallest thing I liked. The Hungry Fly is a weird fucking horror game. It is It is a weird, freaky little thing. I've been thinking about it all day. Um, it's a really gross uh and dreamlike and uh, worth uh 15 minutes of your time you oh boy yeah it's gross first, first person fly game yeah huh yeah all right it's <laughs> described as a horror fairy tale 
where you eat memories. There's a line in this game that I've been thinking about for the last 24 hours, which is uh, you're talking to this big plant. The plant goes, this is a world where, oh yeah, oh poor fly, you won't find anything dead in this world. And then goes on to explain that like things only change into other things. The only thing that dies is time, which means that you eat corpses. The only corpses are memories. Uh, and Im- so it's impact this, like, the narrative of the error. game with your choices and eat old and bizarre food. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, a crayon full of meat. <laughs> Man, bad mojo walks so this game could fly. This is kind of interesting. Uh, the, the game has a content description yeah. uh, down here on the on its Steam page, and uh, the developers wrote. Uh, this game is intended only for mature audiences and includes violence, blood, and gore. Also, if you are sensitive to one or more of these themes, please do not play The Hungry Fly. Depression, self-harm, arachnophobia. <sighs> this list is not 100% exhaustive. If you have any doubts, it's safe to assume that this game is not suitable for you. Be safe. Which is just like a really interesting way to write that, which is usually just outline the themes, the things that might people might want to walk out for. But, all, but it's still under the guise of like, hopefully you'll play our game. And here, just like, it's cool. Like, don't play it. Like, be safe is, I don't know. That's that's really neat. Uh, Patrick and Kato, anything uh, from Next Fest that... Uh... Mm, yeah, we stream. We, yeah, we did our uh, our, 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 our uh, regular uh, Steam Next Fest or we did an Xbox One uh, stream where Kato and I uh, play a game for 15 minutes and then move on to the, the next one. I think we played... Five or six uh, games uh, over the course of the the two hours. We did the System Shock uh, demo. Uh, we did <laughs> Phantom Brigade. We spent most of the time in the System Shock demo in an apartment because I couldn't figure out how to interact with the computer. Uh, <laughs> we did Radio the Universe, uh, yeah. a Kickstarter game that Kato and many other people in the chat appeared to have backed a decade ago and is now finally uh, getting... It's, it, it's a... A Game Boy, the game I would shout out is this Radio of the Universe, which is sort of a Game Boy aesthetic top down action game in which you have melee combat and gun oh, combat. The thing gorgeous. that I would say yeah. it's really gorgeous. Uh, the thing that is so interesting about its mechanics, though, the thing that really sold me beyond just the vibes was when you get into combat uh, on HP, you know, HP number uh, appears over the, the head of the enemy. Your attacks do different damage values, specific damage values. So it's not like a, here's a crit situation. So you do a regular attack, it's 2 HP. You do a strong attack by holding the attack button, it's 3 HP. If you do one of your gunshots, which has a big widespread, that's 2 HP across whatever targets that it lands on. The only way that you gain experience is by attacking an enemy and hitting the number zero. So if you just go into a room and spam your attacks, you'll clear the room but you're not going to get experience points to work that up rules. through a skill tree. Yeah, it's awesome. And so it made, it adds this really interesting strategic layer to the combat where you're thinking about which moves you're using, not because necessarily their effectiveness, but frequently because you don't want to use them, right. but it's the one you need to do to get to zero. And the reason I found that so interesting was because, and I, you know, I, I articulated this on the stream was I have a real tendency, you know, this whole reason I did Elden Ring and like tried to reshape my character if you will let me just keep doing the same thing, I will. I'm not the kind of player who's going to mix up their attacks because they're here. And so the notion that a game builds that into its systems by saying, 
hey, the only way to get stronger or more interesting and more dynamic as a character is to be using your full arsenal because we've assigned a numerical value to it is awesome. And so really enjoyed that part of it. And it was definitely the the highlight of the the games we checked out. Kata, was there one that stood out for you? Um, yeah, I was actually really, uh, like, like I, I, I had some trouble wrapping my mind, uh, around it at first, but like, I keep thinking about the game. Um, I guess it's pronounced Racine, probably. It was mm-hmm. that card I game. I thought that it I, might be, the, uh, Racine. Racine. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, okay. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I believe you. <laughs> uh it's a surprise it's a card game but it's uh it's interesting it's a um basically your 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 cards are heals or buffs to your character who attacks automatically on like a just a regular at a regular pace like a normal pace and enemies uh come in from the side of the screen and are attacking you but Every time you play a card, no matter what the effect of the card is, you get a small shield. So there seems to be this rhythm where you want to be playing cards as quickly as you can because it's all real time. You're not; it's not turn based at all. So you want to be playing uh, your buffs and heals uh, as kind of quickly as you can. And there's like um, the 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 like resource that you're using ticks up over time, but you can also sell cards to like get a big boost. So there's this, like, very quick decision-making of, like, you want to keep playing cards so that your shield is kind of up almost all the time. So you're, because it's um, it's very difficult to time it exactly to the attacks. There's not a lot of um, tells on the enemies, except some of the bigger ones have very obvious tells. So it's about making, like, very snap decisions in a very, like, quick order and, like, I don't know. It looks it looks really cool, and it's still very obviously a work in progress. But I'm I'm interested in following it. Um, uh, I just want to know: uh, mm-hmm. enemies do actually have a tell that is uh, you can get a skill that has a bar show up over their head that shows exactly when they're going to attack. So it act it is it is it makes that very explicit. Sure, but when you start the game, there is that doesn't exist, right? You have to. I didn't see it in the. I mean, we only played it for fifteen minutes, but at right. the beginning, at least, it's like there isn't really a way to tell. So like part of the, especially when I had like three or four enemies up and they were all kind of attacking simultaneously, part of it was just keep playing things and make sure I can always play something. So I would have to sell something, play it, sell something else, play it. And like, keep that, keep that rhythm going, um, kind of like quickly enough that my shield was kind of constantly up. It was fun. It was neat. Um, I'm excited to see how I'm excited to see more of it because yeah, the 15 minutes I played was was fun. Yeah, mm-hmm. I beat the demo. It was very good. Nice. Uh, I was playing a bit of Xenonauts 2, uh, which is like, much like Xenonauts was, it is uh, original XCOM from like 1993, but this is sort of a modern approach to it or, or like trying to be like faithful to that original, very pointedly not uh taking its cues from for Axis's uh XCOM XCOM series. So like time units are back, for instance, like the the choices you make are are much more granular. The squads you deploy are much, much bigger. Engagement ranges are much, much wider. Uh it's cool. It's it feels like a it feels like XCOM, but like 
modern, I still feel like, um, and I think Xenonauts 1 had this problem too, it's just, there is not a lot of character or atmosphere in the, like, presentation, uh, so far at least. I think, like, it's a very clean looking game, it's very readable, it doesn't look bad, like, the, the little character models, like, look good and everything, the little... Uh, cleaners you're up against at 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 the outset who are like these little like um literally it's like what if the men in black were wearing like uh just nothing but like head to toe ppe uh and they were working <laughs> for the aliens uh that's that's basically what you're up against at the uh, start of this demo uh like they look kind of menacing and, and all that but like just the environments don't really uh there's just not a lot of atmosphere and i think that's going to be a you know, what's kind of weird is original XCOM in its way also had like a lot of a lot of atmosphere. Um, it, you know, it may oh, have- like t- t- when we looking at Terror for the Deep when we did that, you know, on that stream like that, even for the, you know, playing in a modern context, like it was oozing atmosphere. I can't imagine what that felt like at the time. Yeah, and like it that doesn't quite come through as cleanly in in Xenonauts. Um, it's it's a little little more. This is pretty boring to look at, Rob. <laughs> it's, it's too clean. It's too clean. It's a it's a little too clean. Like hopefully, like maybe you get deeper in the game, maybe things get a little bit twisted. Uh, but <laughs> right now it's very clean. Um, but on the other hand, I do kind of enjoy just how dangerous it feels. And what I mean by that is much like in the original, like you know. The original XCOM or Terror from the Deep, big squad goes out, sometimes small squad comes back, right? Like character <laughs> just like takes a step out and is observed from an enemy up high and like, bam, they are just down. And what you learned is something is out there. That's the good news. But the bad news is like there was no exchange. Like you got a little bit of information and in exchange for that, you lost one of your one of your troopers. And that that's very much in play here as well. Like this is one of those things where, you know. You can turn a corner. And what I mean by that is like literally if your guys are not facing the right way, they do not see what is around them. So like (laughs) if you are like rushing to flank a flank an enemy like guy who's in cover and you make a flank run and turn to shoot him and your guy like spins left to shoot the guy, whatever was out to his right and is now behind him is not observed. And so if on the next turn, uh, you just like got get got from like point blank range because there were like two dudes standing there. Too bad your guy just doesn't have awareness like that. That's the, like that's kind of how lines of sight work in this game. Uh, and that makes for kind of a a really cool feeling because I think one of the things that a lot of uh what Firaxis XCOM missions turned into was you kind of like shuffle through and you have a feel for like where the pods are and you're like I'm going to trigger this pod and have this little gunfight etc it's all going to be I'm going to break this mission down into a series of like manageable encounters in the demo like the opening mission is like this raid on an arctic research base and it can go a lot of different ways. Like maybe you start at the perimeter and you just proceed deeper into the base, engaging more and more enemies, but you might also just have a landing zone that is like squarely in the middle of the base. And the minute your guys deploy, you're actually fighting guys from like 360 degrees around you. And like the battle takes on a completely different shape and has a real like sense of, uh, 
Billion describe as like panic, right? Like the realization, you know, you're always trying to figure out like where's the front line, like where are the enemies, where are we in relation to it, where like where's this fight happening, and like on the mission when it turns out like it's all around you, that is a real like gut check moment <laughs> where you're like, oh, I'm just like I am in it in every direction now, and I don't know. You, know, you get your sniper set up on the back line, except it's not the back line; it's just a different part of the front line, and that's that that's a sort of a fun place to be. So it's uh you know there's there's a lot of like i think potential for like a really cool tactics game here i am hoping that maybe it has a bit more flavor than it shows right now but i don't know man xenonauts one looked this way too like this is a like this is a series that this is kind of the aesthetic um we'll 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 see what we'll, we'll see what comes of it but if you've been nostalgic for this type of tactics game and i certainly am uh this is a a really like nice one that plays very very well uh so that's what that's what i have been messing around with um i think we'll skip the question bucket today we've been going we've been going for a while so we'll just call that a wrap on today's episode of waypoint radio if you want more waypoint you can follow us on twitter at waypoint facebook and youtube waypoint vice you follow me on twitter at rob zachney kato where can people follow you at a underscore kato underscore appears patrick (laughs) at patrick lopic ren at ren or raven you can also check out what we publish on waypoint.vice.com. Patrick, you wrote a piece about non-competes, but actually kind of beyond just non-competes, uh, the the other sorts of weird restrictive clauses that just are almost standard practice uh, in the game space. You want to tell us anything about that? Yeah. When the FTC is looking to ban outright non-competes, uh, the sort of uh, contracts you might sign where Let's say a company like say, hey, for a year or two years, you can, if you leave here, you cannot work for a company that works in the competing industry. Um, certain states like California uh, and others, there's a handful that uh, don't allow that to happen unless you are on sort of like an executive level. Like you have to be pretty high up for that stuff to qualify. It's what meant to be out of the, the reach of the sort of like average worker. Uh, and so I started asking around like, hey, is this like a huge problem in the video game industry? You know. Yes and no, but every time I would talk to people about non-competes, they would talk about it in the same breath of uh, conflict of interest, and they would use the same language of non-compete because um, it was basically like don't compete with your the company yourself. Uh, so what I mean by that is I would hear stories over and over of game developers who were told they cannot work on games in their personal time uh, unless uh, they left the company. You cannot do, it's not even like, don't do it on work time. Don't do it on work computers. Don't do it on your own time. Don't do it on your own equipment. If you do, we own it. Uh, if we find out that you're doing it, we'll find a way to own it. Uh, and that is just deeply restrictive, goes beyond the company trade secret clause that would, you know, the, the NDAs exist for a reason. NDAs can cover what companies are talking about here, which is, hey, if we're working on some proprietary mechanic or technology, like don't go do that in your indie game. Um, contracts exist for like NDAs exist to cover things like that, but they become over time much more inclusive of everything you do for the company uh, belongs uh, to us. Unless you go through hoops like hiring a lawyer to have it exempted, um, which is its own uh, uh, process that not everyone can necessarily afford or even think that they could do. Um, there are companies where you will declare Hey, these are the things I'm working on. Here are the ideas I have had working for your company, uh, which in theory is going to legally exempt all parties from having any interactions. But 
as the story points out, you know, I spoke to uh, someone very high on a, a really major shooter franchise that has that clause in their contract. And so they have ideas constantly, but they don't execute on them and they don't even put them in a computer, personal or corporate. They just write them in notebooks and put that notebook somewhere safe in their house. And then one day, maybe they'll have a chance to to do something with them. So it's really about a culture of fear uh, that is created. What is worth pointing out, and I can, I can close on this, is that it's basically not legally enforceable. <laughs> uh, it is just legalese put into contracts to scare developers into not doing things because maybe it'll take away from what they're doing at their day job. And then you have companies like Ubisoft who build it in. You can go through a process formally with the company. I had two folks that I talked to, one of which worked formally worked at Ubisoft, and they got a board game through. They declared it to Ubisoft. It went through. They were allowed to work on it their own time. And then uh, the only other clause was if it made a certain amount of percentage of your personal income relative to what you're getting paid at the company, that would prompt a conversation of like, hey, like, are you spending a shitload of time working on this? Is that impacting your work? Didn't necessarily stop you from working on it. There were just sort of some some kind of breakers built into the process. So yeah, it's a big kind of, you know, it's not the sexiest stuff in the world, but I think it's really interesting um, because it's the sort of thing that uh, impacts a lot of people that work in games and outside of games. It's a huge thing in tech and IT. It is not exclusive to games, but that is the lens that I uh, looked at it through in that piece. All right. And then, hey, thanks to Waypoint Plus, we've been able to have a bunch of fun streams lately. As we alluded to earlier, Patrick and I, we're just playing all the Dead Space. My my mm-hmm. my joint Dead Space game has turned into my canon Dead Space game. Uh, we uncovered uh, sea shanties, uh, weird weird text logs. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I joined a cult accidentally on the last stream. Who who can say? Uh, but it's it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and I think this week we're also going to be checking in on. Your only move is hustle, correct? Yummy. You've done it. <laughs> well, then it, you check that out in Vodtown. Or maybe if you run, we're still there. Just run right now. This was a long be, recording. I don't know. You're probably that. running to it. You're probably running to a dwarf fortress yeah. at that point. I'm not sure if you're running to a. Well, well, who who can say? Maybe maybe I'll, like uh, your only move is hustle. Will be, will be thriving, uh, and and maybe maybe Ren and Cod will be de- will decide we don't need to kill a dwarf hole today. We don't need. <laughs> Weirdly, the only the only way you'd get there is if you did what the title describes. The only way you're going to get to that scream, your only move is to hustle. Is hustle. <laughs> Yeah. Think about it. And for our Waypoint Plus listeners, uh, (laughs) we had a very special guest come on to discuss the Super Bowl uh, and Eagles fandom. Uh, You can chicken wings. Yeah. So you can listen to Patrick and I and Austin uh, talk about the 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 Go Birds Bowl. Uh, We will. (laughs) We're we're all going to be we're all going to be pulling uh, for for Mm -hmm. Philly uh, this this week. And all true fans of, of Waypoint will be pulling for for Philly, even if you live in Kansas City, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> they're, they do. already got theirs. They already had one. Let Philly even have I'm, this. Let Austin even I'm have channeling this. my energies. They got one five years ago. I don't know. I don't know that you have to actually phrase it that way. Right? We could just say Austin is our friend and we'd like him to be happy. He doesn't deserve two Super Bowls in five years. No, I draw the line there. <sighs> 
I had, yes, you're, that's a good point. But in my mind, it's like, <laughs> K, but KC just won it. That was like yesterday. So that was many, that was like two, three years ago now. It's bet. Look, yes. actually, you know what? Fuck both these teams. They've <laughs> wow. had it for two, they've had wow. it too good. Patrick, you're wow. right. Like this is this is a this is a Super Bowl for the halves for football's one yes. percent. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> but the revolution is coming, and that revolution is, is the Chicago Bears. Justin Fields. Justin. Fields. Oh wow! I freaked out so much when I heard that in Dead Space. Justin. <laughs> <laughs> Scream to the outside. <laughs> Bitch to Montgomery. I'm dead. We have to Boom. stop this podcast. You've broken me. Uh, also, Waypoint Plus listeners uh, can look forward to fairly soon. Uh, it's the the 2023 season of Manhunting is going to kick off. We're going to be getting into uh, his beloved film, Public Enemies. Uh, so so be sure and, and check that out. We only got only, is that the hacker one? No, that's Black Hat. Public Enemies is regrettably mm. the Johnny Depp movie. Uh, also oh, no. Christian Bale. It is about the manhunt for Dillinger and uh, sort of like the rise of the FBI as a national uh, like uh, law enforcement agency with a with a bent toward fascism. Uh, anyway, if <laughs> well, that. It's it's very there's a point where I think J. Edgar Hoover quotes Mussolini in uh in public enemies like wow, what is, movie, what movie, is, very what is Michael Mann about. think about the FBI the FBI, huh? Yeah, yeah pretty <laughs> much. Uh, anyway, if that sounds good or you just want more Waypoint, you can go to waypointplus.com and subscribe. Not only do you get access to our premium feed, but you're also helping support Waypoint and everything else we do here. And if you want to show not just support, but zeal, go to waypointgeneralstore.com to buy some of our fine Waypoint merch. Our theme music is by Boa, and the track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Learn more at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. For now, we're calling time on this week. We will talk to you again next week. Until then, fuck capitalism. Go home. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Did you just dab? <laughs> yeah, that's called, that's capitalism, baby. <laughs> Dabbing on capitalism. Awesome. Dab on your haters. And yeah. my haters at the state. <laughs>